my plan for them is to think first about the mission of the church. We, we, we concluded yesterday by building a sort of a, a brief doctrine of the local church. What is a local church and what is its authority specifically to do? And I obviously gave it a pretty strong congregational spin just because I think these things, those things are all essential to what the church is. It's a, a gathering of, of priest kings who covenant together by mutual agreement. We saw in the London Confession, the first Baptist London Confession, I like that phrase, by mutual agreement. It gives us, it gives us exactly what Matthew 18, verse 19 says. If any of you agree, right, where two or three are gathered in my name, or there they are agreeing, He's with them. His, his authoritative presence is there signified. And so the very essence of the church uh, is, is these gathered and agreeing, covenanting priest kings. And in that sense, an, an elder, a pastor, is not uh, essential to what a church is. Um, to use an Anglican distinction, the elders are of the ben essay, not the essay. They benefit when a church is, but they are not essential to have a church being a church. And uh, that's what you see in scripture. Think of Acts 14.23, which has Paul and Barnabas returning to all the churches to appoint elders. In other words, you had churches, sons, elders, right? They were churches. They did not yet have elders, but clearly they needed elders, which is why Paul then says to Titus in, in Titus 1.5, I left you in Crete, Titus, to put into order what was left remaining and appoint elders in all the churches. Again, churches need elders, but they're still churches. The church consists of its members. That's what makes a church a church. And... Um, Elders are of the benefit. Now, the elders have oversight over, once appointed, to lead the church in their use of the keys, lead the church in being the church, and uh, you want healthy elders, obviously. Um, anyway, that was, that was the conclusion of yesterday's talk. What I want to talk about now is the mission of the church, and then my, for my final lecture, well, there's two more, but I'm going to try to leave the last one unplanned because we can use it for Q&A. We can, maybe if one of these first lectures goes long. And then there's thinking very much about, okay, pastoral practice with regard to politics. Uh, we think that through. I'm going to have five or six recommendations for pastoral practice, thinking about politics specifically. So that's, that's the plan for the morning. Um, This lecture, what is the church's mission? Uh, let me send you an outline. And again, again, the letters are messed up because I'm 47 year old, years old. I have two master's degree and a PhD, and I cannot figure out how to get my letters to restart when Word automatically makes them follow the previous ones. You know what I mean? So there it is. It says F, but it really should say A. A, story one, ruling the sons, the kingly storyline. B. So 
There it is. Uh, but l- l- let me start with a story. Uh, this, is, this is me standing in my neighbor's backyard where he was busy planting a tree and he belonged to a liberal mainline church. And he looked up at me one point and said, in all seriousness, hey, I'm, I'm doing church work. And I was like, excuse me? You know, it's, <clears throat> it's planting trees, quote unquote, church work. Well, the answer depends on what you think the church's mission is and what God has sent the church into the world to do. Has he sent the church to fulfill the Great Commission by making disciples, or has he sent the church into the world to do more than that, including everything from planting trees to caring for the poor to doing justice? And for several decades now, this has been quite a controversial topic among Christians. Some offer a narrow definition, which focuses on the Great Commission work of making disciples. Others offer a broad definition, which includes every aspect of being a disciple. So missiologist David Hesselgrave offers the narrow definition. He says, Great Commission mission is uniquely ours and requires us to make disciples by preaching, baptism, and teaching the peoples of the earth. Okay, that's the narrow definition. Great Commission mission is uniquely ours and requires us to make disciples by preaching, baptism, and teaching the peoples of the earth. Meanwhile, John Stott and Christopher Wright provide a good example of a broad view of the church's mission. And they point not just to the Great Commission, but to all of Scripture. They write, this is Stott and Wright, the word mission is properly is a properly comprehensive word, embracing everything that God sends his people into the world to do, and that everything is indeed broad and inclusive if we take account of what the whole Bible shows us. So why limit it to that one particular text? Why not look at all of Scripture and everything? that we're commanded to do, right, throughout Scripture. And that must be the church's mission. Now, uh, just just a, a book recommendation. Um, there is a Zondervan Four Views of the Church's Mission book edited by Jason Sexton. Zondervan Four Views of the, missions, the Church's Mission I just stuck it in the chat, and that has Christopher Wright presenting the broad mission, and it has me presenting a slightly complexified narrow mission. And so you can see him and me interacting, Christopher Wright and me interacting, along with two other authors. But I I personally think the more interesting conversation is the one Christopher and I are having back and forth with each other. Um, the, the, the third author is a guy named John Frankie. He's definitely more of a liberal persuasion. It's just like God is love, period. That's all I have to say. And, um, and the, the, the fourth one is, um, oh, I, I can't remember his name. What's his name? Uh, Peter. Peter Lightheart. Yeah, Peter, Peter Lightheart. Peter Lightheart, thank you. And he takes a very 
uh, sacramental approach. It's 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 interesting. It's, it depends on his ontology. It's it's, it's very it's it's idiosyncratic. Um, I think part of the challenge between, but but yeah, I, I think the real conversation is here between broad and narrow. And part part of the challenge between choosing between a broad and narrow is that both sides appeal to certain biblically informed intuitions, right? So the narrow definition appeals to the intuition that there must be some distinction between what the whole church must do and what I as an individual Christian must do. So we don't ordinarily refer to planting trees as church work, right? If we put planting trees into the church, you know, we put planting trees into the church budget, what criteria should we leave anything out? The broad definition, however, appeals to the sensibilities that say words and deeds, words aren't worth much without deeds. What pastor would ever stand in front of his congregation and say, it's not your mission, church, to love God and your neighbor? That doesn't make sense. So in some ways, it's as if the broad and narrow camp are looking at different things. And what, what, what I would argue, is sort of like, I think, I think I mentioned this the other day, it's like comparing the mission of a law school or a medical school versus the mission of an actual lawyer or a doctor. One focuses on teaching, the other focuses on being or doing. Um, so there's sort of two issues at stake here. Issue one is, okay, well, what do you mean by the church? And issue two, I think behind that is a deeper, more profound conversation about salvation and what human beings most urgently need salvation from. So there's, there's two issues at stake in this whole conversation. One, what do you mean by the church? Number two, what do we most urgently need salvation from? And I think that tends to impact whether you talk about it in narrow terms or broad terms, your answers to those two questions. Let me, let me, I'm here, I'm going to, I'm going to offer you three basic things that I want to argue. Okay. Uh, number one, defining the mission of the church requires defining what we mean by the church. Number one, defining the mission of the church requires us to define what we mean by the church. And just to unpack that slightly. Are we going to talk about the church as its individual members or the church as an organized collective acting together? Are we going to talk about the church as its individual members or the church as an organized collective acting together? So as you know, at the risk of just selling my typical, like my typical egg-headed academic self, we simply got to clarify what we're talking about. And here, one more thing to say on this first point. This is all under the first point that I want to try to convince you of. The church as its individual members have a broad mission, being disciples. The church as its individual members have a broad mission, being disciples. And the church as an organized collective, acting together corporately, have a narrow mission, making disciples. So, you know, what you're, what, what you're seeing is that in the conversation between narrow and broad, I'm kind of saying both and, but each for its part. 
you have to clarify first what you mean by the church before before you can ask you know, answer that. So, church has its individual members, broad mission, being disciples. Church is an organized collective acting together. You know, what do your pastors do? What do you put in your church budget? What do you, what, what do you all do together? Where do you bind the conscience of one another to act? Narrow, narrow, narrow mission, being dis, uh, making disciples. Okay, that's all the first thing I want to say about the mission of the church. Here's the second thing I want to say about the mission of the church. It's the most urgent task of the church in both senses of the word is making disciples. The most urgent task of the church in both senses of the word is making disciples because the world's most urgent problem is theological. The most urgent task of the church in both senses of the word is making disciples because the world's most urgent problem is theological, vertical, you might say. Making disciples is not our only task, but it's our most urgent task because a person standing before God is the most important single fact about him or her. And then the third thing I want to say in this lecture, <clears throat> I'll try to persuade you of, is that God doesn't call churches to transform the world, but to live in a transformed world, okay? God doesn't call churches to transform the world, but to live as a transformed world. So you, you can see I've, I've, I've tried to incorporate the insights of the fo folks like John Stott and Christopher Wright, but I'm, 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 there's a sense in which I'm saying both and, both broad and narrow, but I'm also skewing towards, careening towards, leaning towards narrow, because our most urgent task is not saving the whales. It's, it's getting right with God. Um, okay, you see in the outline, story A, story one, ruling as sons, a kingly storyline. And let me just really briefly remind you of things we talked about as we go through the Bible uh, in five episodes, creation, fall, Israel, Christ, church. Um, earlier, a couple of sessions ago, we thought about the Bible's kingly storyline, that Adam and Eve were creating God's image to rule as king and queen over creation. And we said, like a son who acts like a father and fathers in his, follows in his father's footsteps, men and women were designed to represent God's character and to rule over creation, right? We talked about that. We talked about the house of the fall. Adam and Eve rejected God's rule. and They go to work on their own behalf. And so he banishes them for the, from his presence. Still, they image God's rule, but it's a perverse image. It's a distorted rule. Israel, wonderfully... God in his mercy had a plan to both save and use a group of people for his original purposes to rule on his behalf and display his glory. Remember, we talked about the relationship between common and special and the common commands, the special fulfills, we said. He commands Adam, be fruitful and multiply. He promises Abraham and his descendants, I will multiply you and make you fruitful. And God himself will fulfill among a special people what he commands of all people. Sadly, again, Abraham's descendants, Israel and its kings, chased after their images and failed to display God's own righteousness. So God cast them out. He said that was the fall part too. Christ, wonderfully, God sent another son, Jesus. He let this son be tempted by Satan, just like Adam. But this son did what Adam and Israel didn't do. He perfectly obeyed God's word and so 
doing, recapitulated redemptive history. He redid it, fulfilling the commission given to Adam to subdue and rule, to multiply and create and to fill. Christ was the perfect image of God and the perfect son. So Adam's perverse imaging problem solved, right? But not only that, church, Jesus promised to give his kingdom to a people. These people, the church, God predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Because they are his sons, God sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. No longer are we slaves, but we possess the full rights of Son. And we are also finally then promised that we will reign with God in eternity. So to sum up, what does God call the church to do? What is its mission? Well, our mission is to be sons, to be restored images, to rule like God rules, to display the character and likeness and image and glory of the Son and Father in heaven. Right? Um, as I said to you guys yesterday, like Father, like Son, like Sons. Father's perfect, so be perfect, church. Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends you, church. And this mission, no doubt, is a broad one. It involves our entire lives. The church's work, you might say, is an image recovery work. It's to live as the transformed humanity. It is to live as a redeemed culture. This is what, you know, as you and your wife stay up at late at night, you know, to, to, to care for the crying baby, um, you are fulfilling what God calls you as a redeemed humanity to do. She's a work today or at home today, whatever your wife is doing, she may not be evangelizing anybody, may try to make a disciple, but she, she is seeking to represent Jesus and everything that she does today. Um, and that is, that is what is she's been called to do. Okay, so that's story one. Story two, look at letter B. Story two, mediating God's judgments, a priestly storyline. Let's, let's go back and look at that same storyline again. But now let's emphasize another character. Let's think about the priest. So God didn't just give Adam and Eve the job of king. He gave him the job of priest by calling the work and watch over the garden. We talked about how the, how the priests would eventually do. Uh, what does a priest do? We said uh, a priest works to keep the place where God dwells consecrated to God. He's to keep out unholy intruders like lying serpents from entering the place God dwells. Adam, of course, failed. God calls Noah to act as a priest by separating clean and unclean animals and offering a sacrifice. God then calls the whole nation a kingdom of priests, which was are to do by keeping God's law. And he highlights the priestly nature of this by, by establishing a line of priests who mediate God's judgment through performing sacrifices and protecting the ritual purity of God's dwelling place in the temple by, by separating clean and unclean and by teaching the people God's law. And at each step, the priests are drawing the line between the inside and the outside. Adam was to do that, as was Noah, as were the Levitical priests. Both priests and Israel as a whole failed, of course, in their priestly vocation. Wonderfully, Christ comes as the Savior and perfect high priest who declares and enacts the judgments of God. He also comes as the Passover lamb who pays the price for sins by shedding his own blood. So Jesus solves not just humanity's perverse imaging problem as king, but also its guilt, shame, and separation problem as priest. 
At the cross, Christ forgave his people's trespasses by canceling the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taking it away, nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And Christ also unites a people, the church, to himself through the new covenant in his blood. And this covenant grants us both forgiveness and the Holy Spirit that we might walk according to God's law. No longer is there a mediating class of priests because all are priests. We're a kingdom of priests again, said Peter. All are now responsible to keep the holy place of God's dwelling consecrated to the Lord, clean, separated from unclean, inside marked off from the inside. What is that the dwelling place? We said it's the temple, the people, the church. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you, says the Lord. Come out and be separate. So Christ may have authorized his people to go like conquering kings into all nations, but he also authorized them to make priestly judgments as they go. So, wielding the keys of the kingdom, which Greg Beal characterizes as a priestly activity, interestingly, God's people once more are to draw this line between the holy and the unholy. We do this by teaching everything Christ commanded and marking off Christ's holy people through baptism and the supper. That was yesterday's lecture. We bind and loose on earth was bound and loosed in heaven. The two ordinances together picture Christ's sacrifice and constitute the visible church, publicly naming who belongs to Father, Son, and Spirit, and showing the nations who's in and who's out. Right? Okay, so let me... Let me say the second priestly storyline. What does God call the church to do? What is its mission? Well, it is to make disciples, to draw a line between the inside and the outside, to render judgments on the what and the who of the gospel, like priests, to formally declare this is a true gospel confession and these are true gospel confessors. But now we're not talking about the church as its individual members and what they do all week what your wife is doing right now. We're talking about the gathered assembly and its unique corporate task and authority. There's priestly work for the individual Christian to do, say in evangelizing, just like there's kingly work for the gathered corporate church to do, but basically exercising the keys and baptizing and giving the supper are not individual Christian activities, they're church activities. Where two or three are gathered in Christ's name. So this mission, to be sure, is a narrow one. Narrowly speaking, the mission of the church, church as a corporate actor, is to make disciples by declaring or mediating God's judgments. And it does this through gospel proclamation, baptism, the supper, biblical instruction. So, okay, how can we, we put all this together? We, we've heard the, the kingly storyline. We've heard the priestly storyline. Look, look at letter C, the church corporately. And the church individually, and this is this is me trying to sum up what we've we've covered so far. How do these two storylines help us pay attention or answer the question, what's the ministry of the church? Well, just as the Old Testament king and priests had different job assignments, so we need to pay attention to two different moments in the life of the church, to two different hats all members wear. Right. Remember what I said at the beginning, defining the mission of the church means we have just got to define what we mean by the church. And I would say, again, the church as an individual members, church as its individual members have a broad mission, being disciples, being image bearing sons. They're always undertaking this kingly activity, whether gathered or scattered, it involves their whole lives. 
as they work to present the church as a model society, a transformed people, an outpost of heaven. Yet these same individuals also take a related but distinct job, the job of making disciples. This, this might begin individually as we, decide, as we evangelize, but ultimately we can only undertake this priestly job when gathered together and acting as an organized collective. All right, so God authorizes a church as organized collective one way and church as its members another way. Um, let me just show you a little graph. Uh, Just share my screen for a second. I think this is the right one. Yeah. So our mission acting all together, summary, it's make disciples, baptizing and teaching them. And that says we are like an embassy. And the emphasis here is on our words, and not just any words, but, but key wielding, binding, loosing words, proclaim the gospel and equip the saints. Okay. Whereas your mission everywhere is to be a disciple, to obey everything I commanded. Very useful illustrator, you're to go out as an ambassador, representing him in your words and deeds, displaying the gospel. You all see that chart? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just summing up what we've looked at. Left, left column, <clears throat> I want you to think, law school, med school. Right column, think lawyer, doctor. You need both, right? You need both. So when somebody says, what's the mission of the church? Well, what do you mean by the church? There's an our mission, left column. There's a your mission, right column. If I'm standing in front of the entire congregation and I'm speaking to you collectively and you work collectively, Make disciples, organize your gatherings, install pastors, think through additional programming, use your budgets, send each other out at the end of every church service in pursuit of the work of making disciples. It's an embassy, right? Your mission, okay, I'm going to pull one of you off to the side now. I'm going to speak to you individually. I'm going to say your mission as a representative agent of this body is to be a disciple, live your life, love your family, go to work, be a neighbor, gather with your church, scatter to care for the world around you. The purpose of making disciples, yes, but also for the purpose of showing the world how to be a disciple in everything you do and everywhere you go, right? Um, yeah, and you know what? As I said, you just simply got to define what you mean by being the church. P part of what's going on in this, this conversation with, with, say, Christopher Wright is our good evangelical Anglican brothers and sisters kind of lack a doctrine of the local church. They just, they don't have much of one. You ask Christo Christopher Wright, what's the church? And he, all he's going to do is he's going to emphasize, many of your Anglican friends, they're not going to emphasize the local parish and its work. They're going to emphasize kind of the church universal. All Christians everywhere. And that's the answer they're going to give. And if you ask them, okay, well, what's, what's, what's the pastor's job or the vicar's job or, the, you know, well, then they'll give you the narrow mission. 
because their vision of the local church is kind of the church officers. So in conversation with Chris, he would affirm everything that I have in the left column there. But he's not thinking the church. He's thinking the officers. You see what's good? You, you see what I mean there? So it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's uh, some of what's informing this conversation because it really has been the Anglicans driving the mission of the church conversation, especially through, you know, decades of, of work from, from John Stott. And insofar as Anglicans effectively lack any conceptuality of a, of a local church, lack any concept of church membership and discipline, that is to say, they just church membership is Church of England broadly. You know, your name might be placed on a register in a local congregation, but it 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 doesn't function that in the same way that we conceive of it, we talked about yesterday. And, and they do not have a practice of chose church discipline ever since good old Henry the Eighth. You know, uh, so their their mission is just is gonna is gonna crean towards a broad one, all Christians everywhere. So that that these polity questions are part of what's animating the differences. But there's more to that, and I want I want to talk about the more to that now. There there, there is an eschatological wrinkle. I, some of you asked the, in the questions that you sent in, how does eschatology affect all our uh, all of this? Let's turn to that right now. I, I, I was sitting in a I was sitting in a restaurant with a fellow elder. He's a lawyer uh, in, in, in D.C., and um, I remember he was he was reading a lot of broad mission sort of stuff, and he, and he said to me, somewhat challenging, you know, Jonathan, do you think your job is just as important as mine? Or, I'm sorry, is more important than mine? And he wasn't actually asking the question. He was actually making an assertion. My job as a lawyer is just as important as your job as a vocational minister, right? Non-ministry is just as important. Why, he, he said, because everything is sacred. When you become a Christian, the, the secular, sac sacred dividing line is erased. Everything is sacred. And after all, I mean, doesn't Jesus rule over every square inch, right? Those were the instincts, good theological instincts animating. I'm not sure he had a full picture, but that, that, that was going on in his challenge to me. And here's where I want to say it's critical. And now I'm on letter D. It's, it's critical, eschatological wrinkle, to uh, keep a wrinkle in the redemptive storyline of history in mind. God, God spread, the Bible spreads. Actually, let me, let, me, let me share this document. You guys, I trust, have seen this before. Here we are. Um, the Bible spreads the work of salvation in Christ across two comings. The first inaugurates salvation. The second consummates it. And presently we live in the overlap of two ages, the age of creation overlapped with the age of new creation. You guys have all seen this graph before, right? This isn't a new thing to you, I trust. We've taken at least a few seminary classes. And what we know is that Jesus came as priest and king in his first coming, but only spirit-filled eyes could see that Jesus was king. His priestly work in the first coming was foregrounded. Now you see why I say in the parentheses there, revealing a priestly. So Christ may rule over every square inch, 
And at this moment, so does the Genesis 3 curse. Everything still dies. Everything under the sun remains futile. All of our work, all of our politics, all of our art, all of our romance and engineering projects remain Sisyphean. Remember Sisyphus, the, the, the Greek myth. You, know, you push the roll up, ball, stone up the hill and, and down it rolls, and so it does for eternity. And the king will be removed and were revealed when the curse is removed with Christ's second coming. Okay. There's five lessons I want you to take from this timeline wrinkle. And this is getting to the second question. Remember, I said the first question is let's define what do we mean by the church? But the second one I said is what's what's the most urgent problem that we need to be saved from? Okay, and this we're really on that second. What's what's most urgent here? In light of this timeline wrinkle, it suggests that, number one, humanity's biggest problem is where I stand in relation to God. Lesson one of the timeline wrinkle, humanity's biggest problem is where we stand in relation to God. I'm not saying that our problems with God don't bring them with problems with other people or problems with the environment. Of course they do. Our relationship with other people and our relationship with the earth is broken as well. But the vertical broken relationship is primary. And it's the cause of everything else. Against you and you alone have I sinned, says David in Psalm 51. The single most urgent problem people must solve is where they stand in relationship with God. Everything else flows from that. Or to make this first lesson a little sh sh sharper, let me say the threat of God's eternal wrath or the guilt of sin is the most urgent problem of all. And the point here has nothing to do with souls versus bodies. It has everything to do with eternal versus temporal. It's not souls versus bodies. It's eternal versus temporal. Oh, you narrow mission people, you're Gnostics. You just, you just care about the soul and heaven. Don't you realize God made us embodied creatures? And you, don't you realize he's going to remake the cosmos? Yeah, but that's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the eternal is far more weighty than the temporal. Jesus warns us, after all, he's going to throw the soul and body into hell. And what's remarkable is if you pick up Christopher Wright's in the reach, big, thick mission of the God book, or you pick up his slightly thinner mission of the church book, there's no mention of hell. How do you write 800 pages on the mission of God and you don't mention hell? It's, it's crazy. In that regard, is hell real? If it is, does it have something to do with our mission? Where did hell go? But not only is eternity weighty, God is weighty. So let's, let's, let's turn our gaze from hell to heaven by asking, is, is it the prospect of being with God what delights me most about eternity? Or is it everything else? Is God himself my gospel, to borrow from John Piper. And if, if God is the greatest good, the greatest joy, the greatest love, the right object of all of our love, such that even our love for neighbor is no love at all unless it is given with respect to love of God, as Augustine said, then it would seem that directing people's hearts and minds to God is the most important thing a church can do. And the singular activity around which everything else hangs. God is bigger, bigger. God is weightier. It, it, it's all about God. 
that's your first job, church, gathered, scattered, is, is pointing people to him, right? I mean, he's God. Okay, second lesson from this timeline wrinkle. Second lesson from this timeline wrinkle. The problem with taking our eyes off the eternal not yet is not only that it jeopardizes the so-called next life, the loss of an eternal measuring stick diminishes the value of everything in this world. Read Camus' The Stranger. So contrary to popular belief, the most heavenly-minded person often does the most earthly good. It's when I know that my eternity is secure, I can pour myself out. Now, a third lesson. To this from this timeline wrinkle. Recognizing this timeline wrinkle should temper how we talk about the church's mission. We rightly dismiss the secular sacred divide, like my lawyer friend did, but we cannot dismiss the regenerate, unregenerate divide. We cannot dismiss the spirit restored under the curse divide. That's still there. Only the spirit can regenerate and remove the effects of the curse. Christians cannot. As such, we only sow soteriological confusion by talking about redeeming creation or transforming culture. We can't redeem or transform anything. We can only point to the one who does. Go back and read Ecclesiastes. How much can <laughs> how much there he was, the king. He got his orchards and his vineyards and his grand projects, and he's like, yeah, it's all futile. That's still the case under the sun until the curse is removed. The kingdom of God goes no further than God's life-giving spirit. A person can be regenerated, yes, but a house, a city, a culture, a constitution, a government cannot be regenerated. All these artifacts remain under the curse. Okay, a fourth lesson from the timeline. So three, should temper how we talk. Be careful with your words when you're talking about the church's mission. Don't use, don't use redemptive language, Holy Spirit language like transform or redeem. Okay. Fourth, the timeline wrinkle helps us recognize that the church possesses a different kind of work than anything else. Let's go back to that timeline wrinkle. Take a look again at it. We possess elevator work, okay? The church uniquely possesses elevator work. We are, we are born, we live, we work, we marry, we have children, we die on the lower age of creation line. You see that there, right? Uh, that lower age of creation line is where we parent, we lawyer, we build, we farm, we paint. If we become Christians through repentance and faith, the regenerating work of the Spirit, however, we do all these same things on the upper age of new creation line. So you see regenerate kingly callings. We, in regenerate ways, parent, in regenerate ways, lawyer, in regenerate ways, build, in regenerate ways, farm, in regenerate, way, in regenerate ways, we act as artists. But the priestly work of church member, pastor, missionary is to get people into that elevator that takes them from the lower age of creation line up to the new creation line, or at least 
the new man in us lives on that upper age of creation line. Without that elevator, you're not getting to that upper line. You got to get in the elevator. And it's the work of the church corporate and its officers that bring people from the lower line to the upper line, right? Uh, the local church was uniquely designed and established for this stage of redemptive history to do elevator work. Its goal is to get as many people as possible, starting with ourselves, off the lower line and to the upper line. Not just a change in people's status, but a change to the very way of living. So to my lawyer friend, yeah, you can act as a regenerate under the spirit lawyer, but only because you got in the elevator first. I'm not just saying change of status. Same change of whole way of living depends upon the elevator. The way we go about parenting and lawyering and building should be different now because we're regenerate. Notice also how the horizontal and the vertical lines in, the, in, in that, that, that graph, I think, correspond respectively to the broad mission and the narrow mission, right? So, so the, the, the age of creation, age of new creation lines, that's, that's the broad mission. Get in the elevator work, that's the narrow mission. All that brings, you know, and, and you need both kinds of labors. You need, you need the vertical and the horizontal. You need priestly and kingly. They're both crucial. Without the regenerate kingly, the elevator workers have no model to present. Without the elevator workers, no one gets to the upper floor. Brings us to a fifth lesson. Fulfilling the broad mission depends upon fulfilling the narrow mission. Fulfilling the broad mission depends on fulfilling the narrow mission. You might even say the narrow mission has to come first. It is most urgent. You have to share the gospel with some of them so they get saved. And you have to properly identify them through church membership and the ordinances in order for people to know that their lives speak for Jesus. Your life speaks for Jesus all week only because you're united to, through the ordinances, a local congregation. Okay, summing up. Ultimately, the Bible story of salvation calls for broad and narrow mission. Uh, let me take five minutes to see if there's questions from that first lecture. I'll take five minutes on questions from Mission of the Church lecture. Just you're gonna have to call out, say your name, and then. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. Um, my my name is Neil Scott. I asked you the question about uh, how our eschatology affects our view of the church and what our mission role is. Yep. Um, if so, would you say that the, the amillennial or maybe post the post millennial view that like bring the kingdom, establish that kind of kingdom on the earth? Uh -huh. It sounds like that's where you were going versus the um, like amillennial view where, you know, we can't necessarily bring all that because everything has fallen. Yep. That that, yeah, that's right. Let me, let me, two, two lessons from our already not in eschatology. Lesson one um, pertains to the mission. And yeah, that's exactly right. There's an already, we, we, as, we as believers are regenerate so that we can truly love God heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love neighbors ourselves, but our non-Christian friends cannot. And in a, in a I don't, I, I, I've not read enough post-millennial literature to see how they deal with the removal of the curse. I mean, is there a gradual removal of the curse in a post-millennial perspective? I'm not sure, but 
in my, in my view, that's just not the case. It is, it is, it is a punctilier moment in the future when the curse will be removed and Jesus will come back. Um, and so, yeah, in the meantime, we live under the administration of Ecclesiastes, you might say. Christians don't. Christians don't live under the administration, or, or, you know, because we have been born again. But yeah, from an all, from a pre-mill or an all-mill perspective, yeah, you're, what, what, what you said is, is exactly right. And uh, there is a, now these days, my guess is most, most transformationalists, quote-unquote, so-called transformationalist types aren't consciously and explicitly post-mill. They're just kind of sloppy. They're, they're just not really thinking it through, and they don't realize that they're operating with an over-realized eschatology. They're just kind of being their utopian, oh, I really want things to get better. I want to make a different cells. You know? So it's not a thought-through post-millennial eschatology that's animating. They're, hey, let's go out and redeem the city. It's just a carelessness, a theological carelessness, honestly. And uh, you, know, you want to push them a bit on that. It's like, ooh. First of all, what's your eschatology? Second of all, is the curse still here? Okay, so that's the first way our eschatology impacts our view of the church. Secondly, it very much impacts us from a polity structure. It's by virtue of the fact that we are already priest kings, that I'm a small c congregationalist. But it's by virtue of the fact that I'm not yet, that we're not yet glorified, consummated, that we believe in elder leadership. We still need teachers. We need elders to teach us. So, so thank you. Yeah, thank you for the eschatology question. And hello, my name is Daniel. I have a question yep. uh, about the mission of the church. How should that impact our budget as a church to whom we support for missions? Like if we yeah. have uh, people in our church that want to be missionaries, I don't know, like saving dolphins or planting trees, or even something like more like orphanage, for instance, or photograph or whatever, that is no primarily related to uh, church planting as such. Uh, how should that impact our budget as a church? Shall we give money or no? Or in what way and why? Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, I'm going to sort of repeat something I think I said to a previous question yesterday, the day before. I, I think there's freedom to do non-making disciples ministry in your church budget but i i i would my personal conviction based on everything i just said to you is that it should be kept to a minimum on the whole generally i'm not saying absolutely i'm not saying all the time but i'm saying ordinarily generally yeah i think you want to keep your missions budget or your budget generally focused on making disciples activities number one because our theological problem is our most urgent problem we have to keep that foregrounded. The world will praise us when we focus on those other things. They'll love us when we focus on dolphins and, you know, trees and caring for the poor and so forth. And so your members are going to get a lot of praise from that. They'll feel good about themselves. Um, it's going to take you as a pastor leader to call them, to exhort them to continue to live by faith, not by sight. 
and recognize that their most urgent problem is this eternal problem. Everything in our flesh and in the world conspires against a belief in hell and heaven. And the fact that our relationship with God and God is bigger, better, greater than everything. And man, that's what we want to get disciple or uh, 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 emphasize. You're going to have to continually push that by faith perspective. And as you start to like, oh, let's siphon money off over here to these kind of worldly projects, everybody will cheer. Oh, that's so great. But you're going to lose track of where the true problem is, and it's over here. And they need you continually pushing them. You need to continually push your own heart in that way. So, so just number one, I, yeah, I'm going to prioritize making disciple things in my budget. Number two, um, and this is kind of regulative principle argument in terms of binding the conscience. You know, I'm a member of your church. I'm required by Jesus to give money to, to the church, right? He commands me to do that. I got to do that. But now, Pastor, I see you giving money to, you know, digging water wells in Africa. And I, I just don't think that's a good use of money. Or I see you say, you know, this, this tree planting or clean the nearby lagoon campaign. And I just, I, I, that, that defiles my conscience and what I think is necessary. But I'm, I'm required to give to the church, but now you're requiring me to give to that. And I, I don't want to use my pastoral authority or the church's authority to, to, to require people think, to do things that the Bible doesn't command them to do. He does require them to make disciples. So I, I do feel fine taking all that money that they're commanded to give and, and giving it to these missionary projects, right? So, so number one, for emphases reasons, and for number two, regular principle reasons. Um, yeah, I think there's a little space in your church budget to do some of these, these, these other non-making disciple type activities, but I personally would r recommend on, on grounds of wisdom, not on grounds of absolute biblical principle, but grounds of wisdom, according to biblical principles, to keep it out of minimum. Now, there may come moments in, in your church's life where you just, you, you know, things suddenly something happened and a bunch of, you know, Syrian refugees show up at the, you know, at the border. British government decides to bring in, you know, half a million refugees and they're all camped around your church. Yeah, you, you know, you, 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 you want to go out and care for them. It's an exceptional moment where you're going to do all you can to care for that sudden influx of refugees camped around your church building. Um, does that help, Daniel? Other questions? Yeah, I can ask a question, just going back to the eschatology thing. I'm just trying to work out what impact the fact that creation will be redeemed by God has upon how we interact with it now. So if your church, for example, was just you know, treating the environment terribly, what, what grounds would you have to say, no, this is wrong, we need to be more sustainable in the way we operate, for example? Well, I would say exactly the same thing. I would say to a husband treating his wife terribly. Don't do that. Stop it. Right? Does that mean that we as a congregation are going to collectively put our money and resources behind helping you love your wife better? I mean, 
No, not necessarily, but I'm going to teach and equip you, you know, to do that. I'm going to teach you and equip you to care for the environment. My, my, our job is to be the lawyer or the law school, the med school. It's not to be the agent, the doctor, the lawyer, the, the tree farmer. Right. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Thank you. Maybe one more? Hello, Damiano. Damiano. Maybe I'm not able to put down the, the thing perfectly. What I'm thinking is about the ministry of Jesus, that of course his main thing was to uh, preach the gospel, to bring the kingdom, but together with it, he was healing people, he was bringing an impact, answering the needs of the, of the people, and not, not all got saved of the people he was healing. Our Bible makes it clear. And so thinking at having an approach similar, I would support more like the Lausanne Covenant, this broader mission for the church, to which it seems that you are not standing for it as long as you said uh, just before. So I'm, I'm, I don't know, like this, this Jesus ministry makes me a bit unsure where to stand. Yeah, sure. A couple of things. Number one, look, look at Jesus. Remember, yeah, he clearly prioritized making disciples. He he could have he could have gone and fixed everything, but 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 he didn't. He prioritized making disciples and, and and teaching the gospel and telling people to repent and believe. Right. That was clearly the emphasis of ministry to, to point towards Jerusalem and what would happen in Jerusalem. The, the the gospels themselves point towards just the allotment of chapters given. All point towards what he would do in Jerusalem. It was death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. He clearly, inarguably, beyond a shadow of a doubt, foregrounded his priestly ministry in his first coming, right? And uh, not to say the kingly elements weren't there. Uh, not, not, that's, so that, that's, that's the first thing I would say. Uh, second thing I would say is what you're watching in Jesus' life is you're watching his whole life. He wasn't a church. What is the church acting together to emphasize? Well, I think it's those priestly things. And do you hear me denying at all that you as an individual church member should be doing all of what I just described or do, do, doing all of those kingly things? You know, did, did you hear me for a second deny that you as an individual Christian and your wife and your family and all the brothers on the Zoom should not be doing caring for the poor, uh, seeking to do justice, caring for the environment, and so forth. Did I deny that? Not at all. I said, no, your, your life has existed, display the gospel in all of its ways, right? Um, but what gets lost in a Luzanne Covenant world, in a John Stott Anglican world, what gets lost? Evangelism kind of eventually does. How's the Church of England doing? How are the kind of churches that showed up and were part of the Luzon Covenant around the world, how, they, how, how are they doing these days? I mean, honestly, most of them have just gone liberal. They've lost track of the fact that this vertical problem we have with God is the singular most important problem we have. They've downplayed that. And it is a mess. It is an ecumenical mess out there. Anglicanism is a, I don't need to tell you, 
You guys know better than I firsthand watching it. It is a mess. And, uh, uh, and you and I have the opportunity to preserve the priority. How do we preserve the priority of making disciples? I think it's in part by insisting on that's the mission of the gathered corporate local church. It's on these things. Now, you Christians in your lives as, as doctors and lawyers sent out from school, it's everything. Display the gospel, yes, because if, if, if you and your wife and me and my wife are not working to display the gospel in, in the neighborhood we live in all week, yeah, that's going to undermine the credibility of our witness too. So I am saying both and, but I'm saying a both and um, with an asymmetry. Let, 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 me, let, me, let, me, let me set it up, up this way. We, we, we don't want to think about it in terms of either or. I don't want to think about it in terms of either or, either broad or narrow. That's not what I'm saying. To use a, a phrase from Tim Keller, uh, I, I want to use integrated asymmetry. There is an integratedness to the broad and the narrow, to the word and the deed, right? They're integrated. You can't, you can't, but there's an asymmetry with them. One is more important than the other. Uh, or sum it up like John Piper did. Christians should care about all suffering. You guys know what comes next? You guys know this phrase? Christians should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. That, capture, that captures that entire lecture in a single phrase. Christians should care about all suffering. Broad mission. Especially eternal suffering narrow mission so there's there, there, there's an integratedness to those two sides we should care about all suffering there's an asymmetry especially eternal suffering and as i look at the life of jesus that's what i see i do see him caring about all suffering i see him especially caring about eternal suffering i think that's a better summary of his life and ministry Right, and then just the Luzon Covenant. Oh, kind of both and. Is that helpful, Damiano? Not asking you to agree with it, but is it helpful at all to clarify? Yeah, I would help you agree with it, but clarify what I'm what I'm saying. No, it, it is helpful. My my fear is only is that like if the church exclusively points to one side and leaves all the responsibility from the for the kingly to the individual. Did I freeze or did he freeze? Sorry? I think you froze up there for a second, or either I froze. Yeah, yeah, sorry. No, I was just saying that I just, I, I'm, I'm, I will not, I don't know, I have to process it. I just do not see so immediate this separation between church and individual, because I'm afraid that if the church doesn't help the individual, the individual will not uh, appropriately do his kingly mandate. I'm thinking also about the collection for the saint that Paul was promoting in the churches to, to help the saints in Jerusalem. So this kind of need of, okay, keep the right order exactly as you say, but not to divide completely what is church and what is individual. Like to, I don't know, yeah. where my head is right now is there. But yeah, I, and that's and that's why that's why I would say I think there is a limited place for it. 
I, I certainly think you should be caring for the needs of the saints. Uh, and and that, that's a prominent part of my own church's ministry, and I think should be a prominent part of all of our ministries. You see that through the early church of Acts, or the early chapters of Acts, right? You see the saints caring for one another. And I absolutely think the saints have an obligation to care. There is a sense in which we are the transformed city together. And as for as, as the transformed city together, we, we are caring for one another's needs. Absolutely. I, I failed to emphasize that. Um, and uh, no, I do think there is a, there's a, there's a small marginal place, a marginal, there is a kind of going back to, I think it was Daniel's question. I think there is a small place for demonstrating that together as a church, but, but again, I, um, yeah, I don't want to separate it entirely. And you as a pastor certainly should be modeling that kind of in general generosity and care. Because if you're not modeling it, um, and I think you should constantly be exhorting it. So if you're failing to exhort it, yeah, you're right. They, they won't. So you exhort it, you model it in your own life as a pastor. You provide, I think, some place in the budget for it. But again, I don't think it should be a big place. Um, and then certainly, yeah, you are highlighting the church's need to Care for one another. Uh, we've we've camped on this longer than I meant, I meant that to be five minutes. Uh, let, let, let's let's um, th start this next lecture. This next lecture might uh, creep a little bit into the next lecture, uh, our, our final time. But I'd like to use most of that final time just for Q and A. Um, this this is let's call let's what do we call this? Um, let's call this lecture. Uh, better pastoral practices. Um, uh, I'll call it how to use your Bible politically, if you want to give this lecture a title. Uh, how, how, to <laughs> how, how, how to think about your job as, as a pastor with respect to the Bible and politics. <laughs> Maybe that's your title. How to speak about, how to think about your job as a pastor with the Bible, with respect to politics. <laughs> okay. Um, what, 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 I'm, what I'm getting at here is we, 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 and I actually have a clearer outline than my title, so you'll be encouraged to know. Um, what, what, what I'm getting at here is, is these days uh, a kind of Rampant Kyperianism has overcome evangelical churches everywhere. You know, Jesus is Lord of every square inch. That's that's what we want to emphasize, and I, I want to agree with that. That is certainly true. I, I, I the way I put it is to say, um, a Christian politics begins with the phrase "Jesus is King," right, or "Jesus is Lord." I think I said that a day or two ago. A Christian politics begins with "Jesus is King." That's where it all begins for us. Right, so that, that's me standing firm with Kuiper. And Abraham Kuiper. And, uh, our, our whole lives are, are under his lordship, and therefore every part of our life is, is, uh, needs to be in submission to his rule um, and demonstrating his kingdom. Okay? Uh, but what that doesn't answer is the question, what's my job as a pastor? What's our job as a church? acting together corporately. Um, just because Jesus is Lord over every square inch doesn't mean we don't have different jobs to do. We do. 
we still need to ask the question, okay, he's Lord over every square inch, but Lord, how? What would he have me do as a pastor? What would we have us do as a church? Okay, in the last session, we thought about what we'd have us do as a church. And I said, acting together corporately, we need to emphasize elevator work, making disciples. Okay, we're narrowing it in even a little bit further. Okay, me as a pastor. And here, your authority as a pastor is is tied entirely to exposition of the word. Caring for the people in the word. And helping them, whether from the pulpit or the counseling chair or one-on-one discipleship, you what sets you apart is that you are able to teach. Right? Think about think about think about the elders' job uh, character qualifications in First Timothy three and Titus one. You know, husband of one wife, not a drunkard, not a lover of money so forth. All of those things are required of every Christian. There's nothing unique in any of those requirements, save two, there's nothing unique in any of those requirements that aren't required of all Christians. You are to, as it were, model for them what they're also to be, which is why he emphasizes those character qualifications, because your job as an elder is to model for them what Christianity looks like. Hey, Christian, here's what it means to be a husband of one wife. Now you follow. Hey, Christians, here's what it means to be not a drunkard. Hey, Christians, here's what it means not to be a lover of money, right? And and so you're modeling gentle. You're modeling for them what they're called to be. You see? There's two things that are distinct about in those lists of what an elder is. Number one, not a recent convert. I've been at this for a little while. And number two, able to teach. Right. So as you're as you're modeling these things, you're also teaching these things. Your, your, your job as an elder is entirely tied to the word of God. Your authority rests on the word of God. You're to teach. Think about the pastors as all. Well. You are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's your job. Teach what accords with sound doctrine as you give oversight to the congregation, which is to say an elder has no authority beyond scripture. You are not called to go into their lives and say, this is, this is what, you know, the best practices for dentistry look like. This is what engineering looks like. This is what, you know, pick your professional field. That's not your job. Your authority is tied to scripture. In the same way, you are not an expert in politics. You're not an expert in dentistry. You're not an expert in lawyering. You're not an expert in epidemiology. Your authority is not tied to those things. You are not an expert in political tactics and strategies and lawmaking and governance. That is not where your authority lies, right? Nonetheless, you have this book. And this book has principles for them that affects their politics. So, how much do you say? How much do you... You have opinions on all of these matters, too. You're an educated guy. Can't you talk about whatever you want, just whatever they talk about, whatever they want in these political matters? Why, why not? Okay, so, what, what is your job with regard to politics? How do you use the Bible 
two, two, two illustrations. Um, illustration one is, is not my own. I'll give you one, a Mark Dever illustration and a story he told me, and then I'll give you my own illustration. Mark, Mark Dever, when he was a, uh, a brand new pastor in Washington, D.C., this was 1994. And if any of you are followers of American politics, you might remember that 1994, uh, it's, you know, Clinton has been in for two years, and uh, the uh, Republicans managed to win the Senate and win the House. And Newt Gingrich is now the, the Speaker of the House, and he has this thing called Contract with America. And so large majorities in both Senate and House. Uh, and uh, Newt, Newt comes with this contract with America. And one of the, one of the, one of the principles, one of the planks of contract with America was a balanced budget amendment. And you know, that's a big deal. And I'm sorry, a constitutional change for a balance requiring a, a, a balanced budget amendment. So it would be placed in the U.S. Constitution. We must have a balanced budget. And um, a member of the church was a, a senator from Oregon named Mark Hatfield. And Mark Hatfield was uh, an older gentleman, godly man. And one day he invites Mark down to his office and says, Mark, the, the House, for, 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 for a constitutional change to work, you, you have to have uh, super majorities in both the House and the Senate. And he said, okay, Mark, the, the, you know, the balanced budget amendment has passed in the House, and it's now in the Senate, and we need a two-thirds majority, and my vote gets us to two-thirds majority. I'm like 66 or 67. And, uh, and the, the party whip is hounding me, the press is calling me, you know, members of my, my constituency are you know, on the phone, everybody is hounding me to put in this last vote to pass the constitutional amendment for a balanced budget. You're my pastor, what should I do? <laughs> wow. And, you know, changing the constitution has happened like a dozen times in the country's history. It's a big deal, right? It's a really big deal. Um, and I was like, Mark was telling me the story. And I was like, what'd you say? What'd you do? And he said, I said, Senator Hatfield, I'm your pastor. I will pray for you as you make this decision. What? That's all you said? I said, well, did you not have an opinion on it? He's like, oh, I had an opinion on it. Absolutely. And I think it's important. Well, why didn't you say anything? Well, because I am certain that Jesus got up from the dead. I am not certain on my opinion on the balanced budget amendment. <laughs> and I am not about to spend my pastoral capital in this man's life over something the Bible doesn't tell me is so. Okay, man, that's a tough pill to swallow, but that makes sense. I get it. Uh, he knew his authority was tied to the word of God. And even though he had a strong opinion on the balanced budget amendment and, whether, and, and the fact that he thought it was important, he would not share that with the senator is he did not want to confuse either his own heart about where his authority lies as a pastor. And he knew, he said to me, he said, um, I knew that 
I was a young pastor in Washington, D.C., and that thing was just like a trap set for me by Satan. You can have influence. You can have a voice. And I wasn't there to have that kind of influence and to have that kind of voice. I was there to teach these people the word of God. And I just knew for my own soul's sake, I had to resist that trap from Satan. And for the senator's sake, to let him know what's most important, what I, what I know is most important, which is his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, not where he stands on the balanced budget of the U.S. Constitution for the United States of America. That is not an eternal thing. And I, I just, I so appreciated and respected that example. I think that's exactly right. Now, Mark went on to say, had it been the 13th Amendment or the 14th Amendment or the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the 13th Amendment, outlawing slavery, 14th Amendment, giving votes to, to, to um, African-Americans, he said, I would have given advice. I think those things are clear from Scripture. Right? I, I can make an argument for those things. So Mark was not saying, I'm not going to wade into any political conversation. That's not what I'm saying. But I got to have two categories. I got to have two buckets of those I would and those I wouldn't. And we're going to kind of develop that now, think that through in, in, these, in these coming remarks. Uh, a second illustration was my own, uh, a young man. And this would be an example of something I would speak into. Uh, this, this was a young man named, named Zach. He, he worked as a, a, a senator in the Maryland State House or Maryland State Senate in, in the years preceding the U.S. Supreme Court's Obergefell ruling on same-sex marriage. So this is before the Supreme Court decided it for every state. And it was still just in the respective state legislators and different state legislatures were doing different things. And, and Zach is a friend and fellow church member. And, and a couple of months into his first term as a state senator, he encountered a, a state marriage, same-sex marriage bill for his state. And he found himself swarmed by media and interest groups and powerful political figures, all pushing them to vote yes for same-sex marriage. And he, I remember he and I sitting outside the church building one afternoon, sitting on a, on a park bench and discussing the issue. And, and Zach and I agreed the Bible teaches that God created marriage for one man and for one woman. And yet Zach was also concerned that America is a pluralistic nation filled with people from many different faiths who disagree on what the Bible is and what it teaches about marriage. And his job was to serve and represent all of these people, regardless of their beliefs. Could he really impose his view on them? He was saying to me, you know, it's one thing to agree on marriage, which the Bible addresses. It's another thing, through, thing to think through public policy on marriage that the Bible doesn't address. And, and, and Christians often disagree on the, what the Bible does or does not say on political issues. So how, how is Zach supposed to vote? And how was I, as his pastor, to advise him? Was I to do what Mark said, and Mark did with Senator Hatfield? Was I to say, I'll pray for you? Well, no. In that situation, I spoke. And, and not only that, I knew that if, if Zach did not stand up for um, marriage as the Bible defines it and put his hand to calling something that's wicked, good, this should be subsidized and protected by the state, this wickedness, I knew that we as a congregation um, 
would potentially move towards excommunicating Zach. And in fact, I later learned that Mark basically told him as much when he had a, had a conversation with, with Mark. Mark kind of raised. He didn't say, we'll do this if you do this. He just said, you know, the, the, you know, something that also is in, in, in the, the mix here to be thinking about is, is the questions of church discipline. And uh, so that was very different than the Senator Hatfield conversation, right, on a balanced budget amendment. Again, how, how do we think through these things? How do you think through your job? How do you think through your job description with regard to the Bible, what the Bible does or doesn't authorize you to uh, say? Seven statements, okay? And seven statements. This lecture ends in 12 minutes. Technically, we'll see how much of these we can get through. And then we'll maybe continue the next session. So, so, statement number one. Recognize what the Bible is, a constitution, not a case law. Number one, recognize what a Bible is, constitution, not case law. And that's, I'm making an analogy, right? A constitution does not provide a country with the rules of daily life. It provides rules for making the rules. In other words, neither the U.S. Constitution nor the unwritten British Constitution offer anything about speed limits or housing construction codes or tax rates, right? They, they do not offer that kind of case law. Instead, what you find in our written and unwritten constitutions, respectively, is, is rules about how to make those rules. Like, who, who does it? It says, you know, my own says there's going to be three branches of government, a bicameral legislator, popular elections, judicial rules. You know, yours talks about a parliamentary system, you know, the, the majority party forming a government and choosing its prime minister and so forth. Um, again, a constitution establishes who the rule makers are and the rules for making the rules. Now, when it comes to civil governments, we might think of the Bible as similar to a constitution. So here's what my own church's statement of faith says about the Bible. It says, we believe the Holy, Holy Bible was written by God, who are men divinely inspired, is a perfect treasure for heavenly instruction. God is its author. Salvation is its purpose. Truth without any mixture of air is its content. It reveals, what does the Bible do? It reveals the principles by which God will judge us. Therefore, the Holy Bible is now and will to the end of the world be the true center of Christian union the supreme standard for evaluating all human conduct, creeds, and opinions. A couple of things to notice from that. Number, number one, it is the book by which all our active political activity will be judged. It says the Bible is the supreme standard for all human conduct, creeds, and opinions. It reveals the principles by which God will just, judge us. In other words, the Bible does not tell us what to do on trade policy or carbon dioxide emissions or public education, but it does tell us whatever we do in thinking about trade policy, carbon dioxide emissions, public education, will be measured by the principles of righteousness and justice established explicitly in the Bible, right? So it doesn't tell me flat tax, progressive tax, but as I'm thinking through flat tax, progressive tax, as I'm thinking through carbon dioxide emissions at this level where this is this level, I am thinking about principles of justice and righteousness and how they might impact those conversations. So, so sitting, sitting there on that metal park bench with, with, with Zach, I, I opened the Bible, I turned to Revelation 6, and I, I read this to him. I said, 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of the wrath is coming. Who can stand? Why will the kings and generals and state senators from the state of Maryland and every political class, slave and free, fear the coming of God's Christ's wrath? Because they did not use their political opportunities, whether high or low, to rule and live perfectly according to God's word. And I said to him, it doesn't matter if the majority of the American public, the justices of the Supreme Court, and the U.S. Congress do not acknowledge God or God's word. He is their God, and he will judge them by his standard, not theirs. It does not matter whether or not they acknowledge the Bible as their book. The relevance of the Bible to politics depends entirely on the reality of God and the reality of the promised judgment of God. Now, does that mean Christians should impose the whole Bible on fellow Christians and non-Christians? Well, no, we don't, we, we don't have the right to impose it on anyone, but God does have the right. The better question is what commands does God impose on which people and how and when? Yes, he does mean to impose some things on everybody right now through government. We talked about that in our, our, our class, What is Government? We talked about a jurisdictional assignments, right? And he does give authority to governments in the first place, and he does impose certain things on them now, but not everything in Scripture. That's why we need, as pastors, those clear jurisdictional an understanding of the jurisdictional assignment of government. He assigns different jurisdictions to different institutions, and our task then as pastors is to pay close attention to what jurisdictions God has established for governments, for parents, for churches, and we recommend these commands that he has authorized for each. So has, has God, for instance, authorized government to prosecute all forms of sexual sin, fornication, adultery? homosexuality. It's not clear to me that he has. It's not clear to me that the Bible authorizes the sword wielder to prosecute fornication or homosexuality, even though I think it's wrong, obviously. He has, however, authorized us to speak out against such sin and, and correct it among our members. Yet marriage laws are different, I said to Zach, than laws that criminalize something. A marriage law, you know, criminalizing something says no, and I'll prosecute you for it. A marriage law, on the other hand, supports, sponsors, subsidizes certain activities, it protects it, pays for it even, because it says this is a good thing. So the question I told Zach to consider was, has, has God authorized government to support, sponsor, subsidize homosexual activity? I think the easier answer to that one is no. So Zach's refusal to support same-sex marriage would not be about imposing a Christian sexual ethic on others. In fact, it would be about refusing to let the world impose its sexual ethic on him, on me, which is what same-sex marriage bills seek to do by asking us to use taxpayer money and governmental endorsement to endorse something God has not authorized government to endorse. It was about refusing to put his hand, Zach, do not put your hand to anything that will provoke the judgment of God at the end of history. Okay, so let, uh, the, the Bible provides standards of justice and righteousness in all of life, 
but it doesn't necessarily tell us how to work out those things in all of life. Let's go back to my, my church's statement of faith and, and consider the second point. It says the Bible has salvation for its end and is the center of Christian union. It doesn't say the Bible is a political strategy book. It doesn't say it's a legislative manual or a book of case law. Instead, it says its primary purpose is pointing people to redemption and what the redeemed look, life looks like, which, which is our Christian union. Most of the Bible's emphasis, in other words, is on the people of God, not on principles for good government. In fact, what the Bible does say about good government is fairly mere. It's not a long constitution, the Bible is, you might say, but it, it, it's a short one. But it does spell out principles of righteousness and justice. It establishes the authority of the government, platform builder, spells out the authority of the church, sign hanger, true gospel, not true gospel, true Christian, not true Christian. But it doesn't say much more. Okay, so that's 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 the first thing for you, brothers, uh, thinking about your job and, and politics. Recognize what the Bible is. It's, co it's a constitution, rules for making the rules, not case law. Here's a second lesson. You, we need to maintain in our minds a very clear distinction between law and wisdom. Maintain in our minds a very clear distinction between law and wisdom. This is crucial for knowing how to read the Bible politically. Law is explicit in scripture. It's absolute. It's unchanging. I don't, I don't care what century you live in. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. All people are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect. A government should reward the good and punish the bad. And the, the, think of these kinds of biblical laws as your constitutional basics. Christians will disagree over what counts as law or constitutional basics. Fine. At least we need to acknowledge that the category exists. The domain of wisdom, however, that's, that's the law bucket. The wisdom bucket, however, not talking about the matters of complete moral indifference. I'm not talking about what should you eat for breakfast, you know, Cheerios or cornflakes, toast or eggs. Rather, wisdom is two things. Number one, it's the posture of fearing the Lord. Number two, it's the skill of living in God's created and fallen world in a way that yields justice, peace, and flourishing. Okay. Uh, in any given situation, wisdom upholds the flood of conflicting signals and competing voices and then arbitrates between right and wrong. So it's the skill. If I fear the Lord, then I have the skill of arbitrating between all of these principles and, uh, in this particular circumstantial moment. You, you might say the relationship between law and the wisdom in the Bible is, is like the relationship between the rules of a game and the strategy you employ to win a particular game on a particular day. Right? I know this team doesn't do well in this field and in these weather conditions. Uh, I know this, this team has a real strong defense, a stronger, weaker offense, and therefore I'm going to employ this strategy against this team here and now in light of these circumstances. Okay, that's wisdom. Law is don't go out of bounds, kick the ball in the goal, that sort of thing. Don't touch the ball with your hands. Right. So here, here, here think, of, think of Solomon and the two prostitutes, both claiming the baby was hers. Does the Bible, did the Bible tell Solomon what, what to do? Well, no. Solomon needed to scratch his head and ask God for wisdom. Right. And so finally, Solomon says, bring me a sword. And the real mother says, oh, she can have the baby. And then the narrator summarizes the story for us. The people were amazed and stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Um, okay, we, we've talked about the government's need to do justice, but what do we need to do justice? Well, we need wisdom from God. Solomon had wisdom from God to do justice. Justice is central and crucial to 
lawmaking, but so is wisdom. Listen to wisdom in Proverbs 8. Does not wisdom call? I raise my voice to all mankind, she says in verse 4. She's interested in Christians and non-Christians, Muslims and atheists, those who read their Bibles and those who don't. I raise my voice to all mankind. And what, what does wisdom say? Verses 15 and 16 of Proverbs 8. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. How do we get justice? By wisdom. Governments to pursue justice, it needs wisdom. All mankind needs to understand this. I can say to my friend Zach, right? And Mark could say to Senator Hatfield, you need wisdom. I'll pray that God gives you wisdom. Israel's kings needed wisdom. The Virginia General Assembly needs wisdom. Moscow's city government needs wisdom. The Japanese Ministry of Health, Labor, and Welfare needs wisdom, but God's wisdom. Now, how can this be if these rulers don't acknowledge God? Well, because whether or not they acknowledge him, the world belongs to him. He created according to his wisdom, verses 22 to 30 of Proverbs 8 say, which means living by God's wisdom means living according to the warp and woof of this world. To go against God's wisdom is to go against the creator's design pattern. See how that works. Not very well. So we need wisdom to do justice. And you as pastors, we need to make sure we have these two categories of wisdom and law. Let me, let me offer you a few examples of how biblical principles should inform, inform our calculations of wisdom. So Proverbs 10.4 reads, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Now, a wise ruler, no doubt, will look for ways to maximize industry and not reward laziness. Certainly, this has implications, for instance, for welfare policies. How easy it is for a nation's welfare policies to abet laziness and exacerbate poverty. However, does that mean no welfare? Well, Proverbs 29, 7 reads, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. And Proverbs 29, 14 says, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. Which is to say, a good king, like a good shepherd, doesn't leave some of the sheep behind. He seeks to bless and benefit all. He's going to judge them in their circumstances with fairness. He's going to consider the causes of poverty and what might contribute to entrenched cycles of poverty. Wisdom, then, is trying to figure out how to put these two sets of proverbs together. And that's going to change from circumstance to circumstance. Some welfare policies help. Some hurt. We don't want welfare policies that promote and incentivize laziness, but we also want to consider what various structural inequities that might create cycles of poverty and seek to do justice for them inside of them. Okay, now this wisdom, Pastor, I'm saying that the legislature needs, politicians need, but it's outside of your lane. You can point them to what Proverbs says on welfare policies, but in some ways I'm not sure you're the one to put it together. And explain, okay, therefore, you know, that means we must this. That's beyond your expertise. Okay, that brings me to point three. Point three is, is, is crucial here. Um, 
minute break, and I'll pick up with point three. Yeah, so it's it's uh it's uh twelve twelve thirteen, back back in twelve eighteen five minutes. It is twelve eighteen, at least in some parts of the world. It's seven. It's seven eighteen in other parts of the world. Uh, this 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 next point point seven is uh, uh, I think very crucial. I think it's I think it's I think it's very helpful. Sorry, just getting set up here. Point three, here it is. Recognize the distinction between straight line and jagged line issues. Recognize the distinction between straight line and jagged line issues. And this is kind of now playing out point two, distinction between law and wisdom. Another way of saying it. And I'm getting this from Robert Benet's book, Good and Bad Ways to Think About Politics and Religion, this distinction between straight line and jagged line issues. But with the first straight line issues, you could say there's a straight line from core biblical principles to policy applications. With the second, there's a complex and jagged line. Okay, so I would argue, for instance, that there's a direct path from biblical principle to political application with abortion. Abortion is murder. The Bible commands governments to protect its citizens from murder. The path is that simple. Now, there's an isolated issue. Abortion then is different than, say, healthcare policy. I'd say that's more of a jagged line issue. Christians might bring biblical convictions to bear in a conversation about health policy. Uh, we should care for the downtrodden. We should treat all people with dignity and respect. We should seek to remove entrenched pipe cycles of injustice and the poverty that follows. We should ensure that insurers and medical practitioners are fair and honest and don't swindle patients. Yet we should recognize that governmental involvement in healthcare arguably hurts the quality of care and so forth. So it's no easy ta task to add all of these principles together in order to yield a biblical or Christian position. Hence, many Christians are going to admit the path from biblical principle to political application is more jagged and unclear, zigzag, zigzag, right? And broadly speaking, we can say that wisdom helps us determine whether an issue is a straight line issue or a jagged line issue. For anybody who just joined us, point three is recognize the distinction between straight line and jagged line political issues. Okay. Um, and here, 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 now even with even with a straight line issue, like abortion, questions of political strategy and implementation are significant. Just because we agree abortion is wrong doesn't determine what's the best legislative or judicial strategy in stopping abortion, right? Some people might think this bill, some people that think that bill. This protest, not this protest. So even then we're gonna disagree on strategies. And so wisdom is needed. And here's why distinguishing between straight line and jagged line issues is important. Churches and pastors should bind the conscience on straight line issues 
while leaving jagged line issues in the domain of Christian freedom. If I were to draw you a little flow chart, I'd be like straight line issues, arrow down, whole church issue, bind the conscience, jagged line issues, straight line down, Christian freedom. That, that distinction needs to be clear in your mind as a pastor. Again, people might not agree on which issue is which. Nonetheless, you need both. And you're working to figure this out. Is, it, is, this, a, is this issue a whole church issue that I'm going to bind, the, a straight line whole church issue that I'm going to bind the conscience on? Members, if you're a Christian follower of Christ, you must believe X. Or is this a jagged line Christian freedom issue? I'm like, I have my personal opinion on this, but I recognize I can't say that. With the, I have a strong opinion on a constitutional amendment for balanced budgets, but uh, this is a Christian freedom issue. Christians can come to the Lord's table and disagree over this. So quick question. More, yeah. So I guess, so a straight line issue would be justice matters. A jagged line issue would be how we prosecute people who, are, who act unjustly. Not quite. I mean, your issues, your jagged line issues are going to be justice matters. Right, okay. It's just that you don't think you have a word from the Lord on who's right. right. Okay, yeah. You don't think the word of God is explicit or even clear by good and necessary consequence what the right policy solution is to address this justice matter. Right, okay, yeah. Which is why Christians get so hot at each other about it. Because we, we realize justice is at stake. But man, you, you're convinced road A, I'm convinced road B. We feel the weightiness and the moral significance of what at stake, because justice is at stake. Yeah, but yeah. I, I think yes to this welfare policy, and you think no. I think yes to these reparations, you think no. Uh, so so the, the, yeah, so straight line, jagged line is, is basically more about not whether or not it's a justice issue. It's about whether or not something is clear in the Bible. Okay. And the more something is a straight line issue, the more the church will institutionally address it. And by that, I mean, pastors will talk about it from the pulpit. The church might exercise church discipline over it. So the more something's a straight line issue, the more the church will institutionally address it through its pastors and through its membership decisions. You cannot support abortion and be a member of my church. If you work for, fight for, fund abortion, you cannot be a member of my church. We preach against abortion. We would make a membership decision over abortion. And I'm just using that as one kind of clear issue. I recognize voting, do I vote for this party? Do I vote for that party? Both parties are pro-choice. Both parties are one party's pro-choice, one's pretend pro-choice, pro-life. I understand that gets a little more complicated. But I'm just talking about just the bare thing itself, okay? If, if we could remove it from an actual election for different parties for the moment, just the bare thing itself. I, I'm voting for abortion or not. You cannot vote for abortion. Okay, that, that our church would treat as a straight line issue, and we will institutionally address it as such. Um, you, you, we, we, we could pick an issue like racism. 
you cannot be in support of racism. We address that from the pulpit. We will excommunicate you from the church if, if, you, if you are in some sense clearly in support of racism. Right? Christians cannot support racism. Most, oh, okay, yeah. You as a pastor will lend your weight, your pastoral weight to a straight line issue. So abortion we address, racism we address, healthcare policy we don't address. Now, most political issues are jagged line issues. Most political issues are jagged line issues. I will say the more unhealthy and rebellious a nation is, the more we can expect opposition from non-Christians, even on the straight line into the spectrum. Meanwhile, on the jagged line into the spectrum, we can expect non-Christians to be quite competent, sometimes even more competent in trying to figure out what good policy solutions are on these various jagged line issues. We know we should plunder the Egyptians, as they say. We should learn what non-Christians have to teach on, on many political issues. Read their books, consider their policy proposals due to cause common grace. I think it's also important to distinguish between straight line issues and jagged line issues for the sake of Christian unity and for the sake of our prophetic witness among outsiders. Christians should unite around straight line issues while leaving room for Christian freedom around jagged line issues. Likewise, Christians should press against the culture on straight line issues for the sake of justice and loving our non-Christian friends and warning them of God's coming judgment. Meanwhile, we, we should argue, we might argue for our, I as an individual Christian might argue for my position on any given jagged line issue, but we should be slower to unite our position to the name of Christ as if we were saying to the world, this is the Christian view on the topic. I think I told you about my political science professor, Finn, where I said, do you, do you actually think Jesus, do you know what Jesus thinks on healthcare and immigration and, and tax policy? And he said, yes, that's ridiculous. And that hurts Christian unity when you talk that way. When you, when you presume that kind of apostolic authority on this or that jagged line issue. And so much, so much political dialogue among Christians these days thoughtlessly and divisively treats every issue as a straight line issue, and it's not. Whether in private conversation among friends or public conversations in the blogosphere, how often do Christians talk as if their position on healthcare, tax policy, immigration, or foreign policy is the only acceptable Christian position, and that all other positions are sin? That's terrible way to raise the stakes and effectively, effectively excommunicate everyone who disagrees with you. Way to make your political calculation the standard of God's own righteousness. Now, when something is clear in the Bible, let's be explicit and clear. When the Bible isn't explicit and clear, let's leave room for Christian freedom. Now, again, you as an individual Christian on jagged line issues, yeah, make your arguments. Disciple. Even persuade, write books, write articles on your view on taxation, fine. Right? Real, real questions are at stake in questions of tax policy. Just realize you, you're not writing scripture. And you need to be very reluctant to bind the co conscience where scripture does not bind the conscience to say, this is the Christian position or a Christian must vote this way. Now, if your church is ready to excommunicate somebody for the wrong position, fine, go ahead and say it. Well, I hope you'll admit that's not the case for a lot of issues. In short, we as churches and you as pastors speak where Scripture speaks, where Scripture authorizes you to go. But you risk dividing the church where the Bible does not speak if you want to speak there. You also risk 
by speaking where the Bible doesn't, you risk misrepresenting Jesus among non-Christians. You are claiming to non-Christians that Jesus stands for something, something that you do not know he stands for. My, my pastor, Mark, doesn't know that Jesus stands behind a balanced budget amendment for the U.S. Constitution. So I'm not going to, as your pastor, pretend like I know he does. Okay, how do we read the Bible? Here's question. Here's point four. How do we read the Bible politically? Point four. Read the Bible politically by one, two, and three. One, considering covenantal context. Two, authorial intent. And three, how God has authorized governments. Read the Bible politically by one, considering covenantal context. Two, authorial intent. And three, how God has, considering how God has authorized governments. Okay. I've already said that the, the Bible is more constitution than case law. That's the most important thing. But here are three more principles. Number one, ask which covenantal audience the, the, the author has in mind. All the Bible is relevant for the church and all humanity in one sense, but it's a little more complicated by that. As we talked about in the previous class, the Bible structured by covenants, both common and special. God gave each covenant to a specific group of people and gave the common covenants to all humanity through Adam and Noah. And we need to pay attention to which audience has in mind. Okay, that's, that's clear. I think you guys understand that. Number two, ask what the author's intention is. I think, again, for instance, in Proverbs 22, 7, the borrower is the slave of the lender. The borrower is the slave of the lender. Was the author's intent to establish government housing policy? I don't think so. I think his goal is to warn against the sense of enslavement someone in debt feels, suggesting you want to avoid debt in many circumstances. In fact, I think a wise government might decide to get involved in various lending practices in order to protect the ones whose circumstances require them to take out loans. Ask, what is the author saying and not saying, and to whom is he saying it? What is the author intending to say and not say, and to whom is he saying it? So that's point two. Ask what the author's intention is. Number three, consider what God specifically authorized governments to do. We talked about this at the length in the lecture on what is government. Look at texts like Genesis 9, 5, and 6, and Romans 13. What are the powers of government? So, a Christian might decide to support the criminalization of gambling or various forms of sexual immorality, believing that God has not authorized us to do so. But such a position is qualitatively different from a decision to establish state lotteries or same-sex marriage. State lotteries positively support and encourage gambling. Same-sex marriage laws positively supports and encourages sin. But God doesn't authorize us to support either. But that's not the same thing as criminalizing gambling or criminalizing sexual immorality. I've talked about that. Number five, here's, here's, here's principle number five. I'm just trying to get through this quickly so we can get to some Q&A. Number five, recognize a pastor's job is to preach the Bible, not propose policy. Recognize that a pastor's job is to preach the Bible, not propose policy. Um, my pastor, in, you know, Pastor Mark had a, had a clear understanding of that when Senator Hatfield asked him about the balanced budget amendment. Um, yes, churches can sin, 
and prove faithless by not speaking up in matters of government policy when they should. There is a time and a season for everything, a time to speak and a time to say silence. Time to speak. 13th Amendment, outlawing slavery. Time to say silence. Balanced budget amendment. God give us wisdom to know which is when. Uh, more often than not, I think it's to say silent on policy matters. Um, but what you need to keep in mind, if your job is to preach the Bible, not propose policy, part of what to keep in mind, if your job is to preach the Bible, not propose policy, is that most of the time, trying to influence government policy involves you in more than just putting on good deeds. It involves you in competencies you do not possess. It involves you in saying more than Jesus, more about Jesus than you have the authority to say. So just think for a second, what is a pastor? A pastor's job is to teach the church what to believe about the Bible. Your job as a pastor is to lay out the path of biblical obedience and bind consciences with it. The Bible says you must walk this way, not this way, which means a pastor without a Bible is a man with no authority and no message. A pastor without a Bible is a man with no authority and no message. The Bible doesn't give you authority to bind the congregation's consciences. Um, as I said before, the best dental practices, accounting methods, the advantages of drywall over plaster. You have authority to unite the church around God's word, not around your personal opinions. You say, here's the path of gospel obedience. You say, walking contrary to that path is disobedience. Yours is a conscience-binding occupation as a pastor. And therefore, you know, wow, you need to know how to hold your tongue. You and I need to know how to hold our tongues. Temper our speech. And speak only where the Bible authorizes us to go. Have I said that enough in the last hour? The Pharisees were happy to bind the consciences several layers of implications out from the text. We should not. Our job is to stay on the line of Scripture. Think of the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> what did Eve do? Eve added, she went above the line. She added to Scripture. He said, you must not eat or even touch it. Did he really say you shouldn't touch it? He thought by adding to scripture, she would protect herself from disobeying. Done work. Meanwhile, the serpent went below the line. He took away from scripture. Did God really say? Is there a man in the house who will not listen to either and call them back to the line of scripture? Hello, anyone? Adam? Apparently not. Brothers, our job is to keep the congregation on the line of scripture, which means holding your tongue and not binding the conscience going above the line or going below the line away from scripture. Um, how do you decide when to address a matter of public policy? We'll go back to the conversation about straight line versus jagged line. One last thought for pastors, I think, here. Uh, there is a way of engaging that's right on the substance, but that's wrong on strategy or tone. I think we can stand up for good things, but our language can become ap apocalyptic. 
we can give political out outcomes and outsized important. We, we can put too many exclamation points, put too many uh, all cap sentences to tell our, our church members or our fellow non-Christian friends that our policy agenda is more important than the gospel itself, as if, you know, as if this election's the most important thing in the world. And when, when we do that, we communicate that we're really just a branch of this or that party. We're, we're saying that God is not so big after all, that, that that's why we have to scream. This is Peter with the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? This is how we're going to take the kingdom, with the sword. No, no, we're not. And something quietly hiding underneath the floorboards in this, this air is utopianism, like we can bring heaven to earth now. We, we should know better than that. Um, one of my fellow church members he, who works for a congressman, he, he once said to me over lunch, he said, I'm just, a, I'm just grateful to be a disposable congressional staffer working for a disposable member of Congress. It's a brief opportunity to do good and to stave off evil. And that to me sounds about right. I'm a disposable congressional staffer working for a disposable member of Congress. Brief opportunity to do good stave off evil. Uh, sixth and finally, sixth and finally, be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. As a pastor in these political and cultural contested questions, be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Here are 10 ways. Are you ready? Here's a list of 10 subpoints to point six. Man, you guys are getting your money's worth out of me. <laughs> And subpoints for how to maintain unity in your church amidst disagreement. <clears throat> I'm going to do it fast. Number one, preach expositionally. You'll cultivate an appetite for the Bible, not your political opinions. Okay. Number two, continually clarify the distinction between biblical law and wisdom. Hey, friends, this is law. We have to agree. This is wisdom. We don't have to agree. Firm grip on law, loose grip on wisdom. Number three, work to preserve Christian liberty. You, as a pastor, need to be the biggest advocate of Christian liberty in your church. You might think, a friend of mine said, you know, when I became a pastor, I, my, my first thought was that I'd have to spend all my time convincing Christians to, to obey what the Bible says. In fact, what I've discovered is I have to spend more of my time convincing them not to impose unbiblical laws on one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're a Christian, you're going to homeschool your kids. If you're a Christian, you're not going to go to these kinds of movies. If you're a Christian, you're going to vote this way. I mean, Christians easily fall into Phariseeism. And so you as the pastor may be the number one advocate for Christian liberty in your church. So number three, work to preserve Christian liberty. Number four, Make room for differently calibrated consciences of others. Number four, make room for differently calibrated consciences of others. I'm, I'm, I'm going straight to Romans 14. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Make room for the differently calibrated consciences of others. I don't know how we can vote for that. Remind your people of the, the, the 
Twitter's teaching us the opposite lesson. Number five, point to your church's statement of faith. Number five, point to your church's statement of faith. Churches unite around the truths enunciated in their statements of faith, not around party membership, not around political opinions, not around any number of things. Number six, speaks more to what scripture says and less how to accomplish it. Political matters, especially, number six, speak more to what scripture says and less to how to accomplish it. Preach that sex outside of marriage is wrong. That's a what. There's, there's no need for a pastor to divide public policy on how, or how to lower teen pregnancy rates. That requires a competence and authority he does not possess by virtue of being a pastor. Number seven, teach the congregation to empathize with those from different backgrounds. Teach the congregation to empathize with those from different backgrounds. That is, teach a body of Christ empathy. See 1 Corinthians 12. Teach them especially to empathize with the least in the world, and the last in the world, knowing that in heaven they'll be first. Number eight, how to maintain unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. Number eight, model graciousness towards those who disagree. Model graciousness towards those who disagree. You as a pastor especially should model that graciousness. Number nine, preach the final judgment and sing about heaven often. Preach the final judgment and sing about heaven often. When we do this, we help our congregation rightly calibrate our political perspectives and to <coughs> access the future hope that activates present love of neighbor. You're helping them to see the big picture. That helps me love my neighbor now. And number 10, and finally, preach the gospel every week. If you are not preaching the gospel every week from the text that you're preaching, not just tacking on an altar call at the end. That's not what I'm saying. Wherever I'm in the Bible, I'm, I'm, I'm saying how this points to Christ. I'm doing this every week. If you're not doing this, of course they're going to divide over political matters. Because they're going to weigh in their hearts the cultural and political things of this world as the most important. No, and every week you're saying, ah, this is most important. The Lord Jesus Christ and his work, person and work on our behalf. Okay? And thus ends my lectures on the church in the world. Um... Questions. Go, mate. Can I ask one? Yep. yep. Yeah. Just thinking practically. Um, loved it. Loved all, everything you've been sharing. But what does it look who's like? This, who's this speaking? James. James, thank you. Yeah, man. Um, what does it look like when you walk past a homeless person and you're on your own? What do you do? Do you, do you share the gospel with them and give them money? Do you just give them money? Do you just share the gospel with them and say, go and get a job once you've been converted? Or do you get the church involved and come back later? Just what does that look like for you? What do you do? What past homeless person? What do you do? James, somehow you're able to ask that question without moving the, your lips. And that's impressive, that's right? It is. <laughs> Man, you're, you're, you're sitting so still. No. Um, uh, 
<laughs> That's much better. Oh, we all get to yeah. see you now. Less of a wrench for the quiz now. Uh, I guess it just depends, right? It just depends. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so, sometimes what? <laughs> sometimes one, sometimes the other, sometimes both. I don't know. Are you in a hurry? Do you have time? Do you have cash in your pocket? Do you, you know? I think it just depends. I mean, obviously, you 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 want them to know the gospel. You want them to be warm and well fed. You you you. So you have both of those ambitions, but also you know some of. Uh, you know, there's other considerations at play as well. So uh, you, you know that some often they'll use the money poorly. So maybe you decide to buy them a sandwich instead. Maybe maybe you recognize that you, you don't want to feed a, 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 a wrong sense of dependency. If a man doesn't work, he shall not eat, says Paul. There's, there's that too. So you have any number of these principles at play. You, you know, you know what's most important. Eternity is more important than what's temporary. So you, I, I'm just going to say, brother, you need wisdom in those moments to, to know what's the best thing to do. And I'm not going to tell you exactly what. I think I've laid out the different principles, what's most urgent, but also what's integrated to that. Christians should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. So there's your principle. How do you put it into practice? Good figure. Yeah, yeah. All right. Just quickly, I'm going to be sneaky and ask my one off the back of that. Um, Jonah 3, um, how Nineveh repents and, and God spares them. But it doesn't seem like they put their faith in God. Um, and it seems like God is just pleased in there being justice. God doesn't say, of course, God is concerned about people coming to him. You know, think of John 4, you know, Father desires worshippers. I just think, what, what, what do you do with that? Because I've always wrestled with this. And it comes back to the homeless guy. What do I do? do? Do I have to share the gospel with him when I give him money? Or is there a sense of I can just give him money and, he doesn't know whether I'm an atheist or, or anything. Now, God still cares that, that that there's been a sense of kind of justice happening there. Um, I just, yeah, I'm not sure if you touched on that, but it seems like God, God, he's not always, you know, you kind of give without receiving, and that, and that includes conversion. And I know, I know this sounds really wishy-washy, but and I'm a missionary, and so I know that conversion matters. But yeah, help me out. Well, a couple of things. Number one, I think you're misreading Jonah. Right, okay. I, 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 absolutely, they repent before God and the knowledge of Him. And uh, obviously, we don't get the full sermon, nor do we get the full exposition of how they respond. But I, I think the text is clearly teaching that there is a repentance before God um, in, in, in that text. Um, there's the acknowledgement that destruction is coming apart from beholding the who's, who's destruction coming from? Well, it's coming from God. So, so. Is, is Jonah's sermon evangelistic or is Jonah's sermon political? Yes, right? It's both. And uh, uh, so, 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 so there's that. Number two, how do I love my daughters? I have four girls. How do I love my daughters? By feeding them? Yes. How do I love my daughters most of all? By pointing them to the Lord. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to take away from either. There's an integrated asymmetry, right? Loving them by feeding them, loving them by pointing them to the Lord. 
integrated. These two things are together, but there's an asymmetry. I love them most of all. I mean, do, do you do you do you do you have kids, James? Yeah, man. Yeah, I've got two of them. Yeah. Okay. So you spend your whole life training and nurturing them and protecting them, and let's suppose they defy the Lord. I mean, your heart is broken hmm. beyond all belief. Like there, there are a few things I want less than my for my ch children to forsake the Lord. But you know what? If I if I if my daughter dies of cancer at age fifteen, but she knows the Lord. Oh, I mean, I'd be terrible. But at the same time, it's like, ha, oh, she knew the Lord. Okay, so we have an integrated asymmetry. We, we have um, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. So back to you and the homeless guy. You know, man, I'm on my way to a meeting. I'm running late. I got, I got, a, I got a five quid note in my pocket. Um, here you go. Okay, that's fine. You know, we'll get a bite to eat. It's not a bad thing. But as time and occasion allow, do I want him to know the Lord? Yes, that's what I want most of all. So that's why I'm just going back to it depends. You know, are you in a hurry or are you not in a hurry? I don't think you're going to be judged for having the exact right decision at this particular moment. In every single particular moment, you must do this. Life's just not like that. It isn't with my daughters either. I think at times it's fine to care for the poor and say nothing. But on the whole, what's, what's, what, what am I building toward? What am I trying to do? I'm trying for the world to know Jesus Christ. And I do everything in my life to that end. So the whole, the whole argument that some folks sometimes use about uh, uh, bait and switch, <coughs> you even get that in some of the John, John Stott and Chris Wright's writings. You know, the idea that, hey, I'm a, Share the food with you so that I can give you the gospel. Oh, that's just bait and switch, they say. No, it's not. It's love. I can understand how sometimes people might construe it as that. If eternal suffering is, is, is far and away the most important thing, then I'm going to address that. Cool. Thanks, mate. I know what to do now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you to use wisdom. Uh, I think that's something we always got to do. Anybody else? Other questions? And this may be a good time to, to ask any of those questions that you guys emailed me. If we, if we run out of questions, I'm just going to start going down that list. Daniel? Yes. So this is a question that actually I emailed you. I think that my email didn't get through, but it's basically two questions. So uh, feel free to, re to respond only one. and. I think that the first one is that if you can recommend, I don't know, four or five books uh, on political theology and, and why. I am familiar with some authors like Oliver O'Donovan, for instance, or Luke Bretterton. And I don't know if you can recommend uh, some books that I, I read your book on, on political church. Uh, so I, I want to get deeper into the subject. And, and yeah, so what would be the, the next four or five or six books to? To get my hands on to particularly in that issue and then another question that is related is that i'm familiar with, with different views on, on political theology the, the anabaptist augustinian christian uh, liberation theology etc i don't know if you could explain a little bit um the, the differences between them and where all the positions like two kingdoms theology or kyperianism fall into this scheme of, of political theology 
and this resurgence that we are experiencing over the last years. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, let me try to do this very briefly. Uh, good, but I mean, all of Rodonovan's Desire of the Nations is, is a brilliant book in many ways. It is, it is Anglican. Meaning he 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 doesn't have the same kind of institutional boundaries that I think are required. Nonetheless, it's, it's a brilliant book. So the Desire of the Nations by O'Donovan. Um, I love David Van Drunen's book, Politics After Christendom. David Van Drunen, Politics After Christendom. He's definitely more two kingdoms. He does great exegetical work with the Noahic covenant. I'd point to David Koizis, K-O-Y-Z-I-S, David Koizis, K-O-Y-Z-I-S. Uh, Political Visions and Illusions, Political Visions and Illusions, excellent book on how the different ideologies that we inhabit, republicanism, conservatism, um, uh, liberalism, uh, uh, nationalism, all have idolatrous underpinnings. Points out the goods of these various ideologies, but it also points out the idolatrous elements in each of them, very good book. Um, I wrote a popular, more popular level book called How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics for a Divided Age. How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics for a Divided Age. And you know what? I'd recommend it. It says everything that I think that kind of book means to say. (laughs) 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 So so, that's why I said it. Um, Those are the first ones that immediately come to mind. I'd stop there. I mean, no, I cannot get into explaining all these different worldviews or, or, or political theologies and their differences. I do that in, in chapter five of political church. Uh, I kind of lay out my, my reactions to these and a little bit in the introduction. Uh, this much I'll say, kind of a Kyperian one kingdomness emphasizes Jesus' rule overall, a more Lutheran ask to kingdomness doesn't disagree with that. It simply does a better job at offering institutional specification. That's the difference. There's in some sense, Kyperian one kingdomness is looking at a pheno- the phenomenological or moral reality of Jesus rule over everything. Whereas the two kingdom is like, okay, well, fine, that's true. But what does the fact that he's king overall mean for the state, mean for the church, mean for the now, in later Kuiper, he actually gets better at some of that stuff as he starts talking about sphere sovereignty. And his sphere sovereignty stuff is precisely what two kingdoms is trying to emphasize, is those institutional realities. Um, I don't count myself a two kingdoms individual. I'm very, very, very close. I'm right. I'm up against the fence. So here's a fence in between me and I'm leaning against the fence into the two kingdoms lane. I would call myself two ages. I'm a two ages political theology guy, which I outline again in in chapter five of political church, um, because I don't think there are two kingdoms. There's one kingdom and Jesus is king over. Two, two kingdoms would apply, apply two kings. But I think I said are two ages and the overlap of the pre- age of creation, age of new creation, and that plays out a little bit differently. You saw how it played out in my discussion of the mission of the church, for instance, where I did that thing. Um, Anabaptists, Anabaptists have a good view of the church, a wrong view of the state. Magisterial reformers, wrong view of the church, a better view of the state. Yeah, long, those are longer conversations. Thank you, Daniel. Thank Other you. questions? Very helpful. Thank you.
Yeah, I've, I've got a question, and you may have dealt with this earlier on in the week, as I wasn't here earlier on in the week. Um, but it's really speaking about... Um, you're speaking about how legislation for or against certain sinful action um, is in the remit of, or one is in the remit of the government and one isn't, or certain kinds of prohibition obviously is there. Um, one being murder, abortion, etc., should be opposed. You mentioned how, um, you know, things like, uh, same-sex marriage, things like this, should not be pushed forward or endorsed or, you know, normatised or whatever. But it sh in your view, it shouldn't be uh, prohibited, uh, legislated against. Um, well, a sinful sexual activity, I said, shouldn't be. Okay, fine. Yeah, fine. Um, yeah, so sorry, that's what I was getting at. Um, but where where would you come down then? Um, they've got the sword. They've been given the sword to protect the Imago Dei. Yeah. Um, and in some senses, that damages that. Would you say, well, I'm, obviously you're saying that they don't have the, the remit to wield the sword in that way so would you say they only truly have the remit to wield the sword with regards to murder or does it extend further than that because obviously we see we see them making uh policy for protecting you know to contextualize it you see them making policy for protecting life um broadly speaking with covid um, which is trying to protect the Imago Dei, but it's not legislating against murder in a sense. Um, whereas, yeah, uh, I, I mean, so, maybe I'm merging two things, but. I, I'm not sure. I, I, in the first part of your question, it sounds like you're asking me, Jonathan, Fornication and sodomy obviously impact the fact that we're creating the image of God and, and, and as it were, in some sense, damages it. Why would you not criminalize that if the Imago Dei is your standard? That's the first part of your, your question. Yeah. Am I understanding correctly? Yeah. And, and, and there, I would, I would, I would say, um, I would say, sure, that's true. It, it, it does harden our souls and hardens our hearts towards the Lord. Any kind of sin does, right? After all. Uh, but, but notice the standard in Genesis 9, 5, and 6, whoever sheds blood. There's a certain kind of physicality, cor corporeality to, to the standard there. It's not simply you hurt my feelings. It's not emotional harm. And I dare say it's not spiritual harm that we're talking about yeah. in, in Genesis 9, 5, and 6. It's, it's corporeal. It's mm -hmm. physical. Yeah, and and uh, I, I think that's the standard. And so now, if you were able to, you know, uh, if you really wanted to commit, you know, you were committed to banning sodomy or fornication or adultery, what you would need to do, I think, from a biblical perspective, is is demonstrate how uh, those practices, uh, arguably and persuasively, you would need to demonstrate that 
that these things do bring that kind of harm on human beings. You, you know, you, you could say, look, all of these statistics and these lines of, of, of study indicate that the children uh, born into these circumstances uh, do far worse in their schooling and higher suicide rates. And you would need to make that kind of argument. You would need to demonstrate that measurable harm, quantifiable harm is yielded by yeah. this particular activity. So, so basically um, the, the, the remit is given on um, harm against the person rather than just the image. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, fine. I think that's right. Yeah, that's cleared that up. Now, you, to, your, to, your, to your COVID point, the, the, the point about COVID is that, yeah, I, th I think in the same way the government is to, can criminalize and prosecute harm, I think by implication, it can prevent harm. Okay. Hence, hence, you know, federal aviation standards. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, 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 or an Old Testament, if you want to use, you know, Old Testament case law, a, a parapet around the roof of a house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lest somebody, lest somebody falls off. Mm -hmm. and, and being prosecuting the one who, who doesn't put that up. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Other questions? Just wondering if you ever have formal opportunities in your church to talk about political matters or whether you, you don't do anything like that. Uh, well, I, I instruct the way I've been instructing you guys. I don't get up and give a, I don't get, I've not given a lecture like on a particular policy area. Uh, you know, I, I did a series of, when I was at Capitol Hill up until 2018, I, did, I, I regularly taught a, uh, a Sunday school class, a 12, 13 week Sunday school class on Christians in government, right? In fact, I used that class to, to create the material that became the book, How the, How the Nations Range. So the material in the, in the book, How the Nations Rage, is what I taught at Capitol Hill through four or five cycles before putting it into a book. Um, so teach at that level. In my own church now, Chevrolet Baptist, last summer, last fall, uh, in, as we were preparing three months out from the election, I, I gave two or three lectures using that same kind of material, right? Um, but beyond that, more specific policy areas, no. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be totally opposed to, well, I, if, if I did have somebody come in and lecture on a specific policy area, I would make sure to push hard Christian freedom and maybe present the counter perspective, um, at least if it was a jagged line issue. Yeah, I, th I, th I, think with, I think with your church, you want to stick on straight line issues. We, David Constable here. Oh, David. Do we create a vacuum at the uh, at that level in government when we don't speak out so taking the uk the archbishop not speaking out being the state church on matters of same sex or go back to the 90s about the introduction of the lottery we just remain silent uh, that creates and in the states i notice your your um, your celebrity pastors turn up to trump Pray over him, but don't challenge him on his his personal behavior. David, are we talking about straight line issues or jagged line issues? Well, I suppose on on marriage, I would say that's a straight line issue. 
Yeah. On jagged line issues, I'm happy to leave a vacuum. Other people can deal with it. It's not the church's job. Straight line issues, yeah, we, I, I, I do think, I do think we, we, uh, we have the opportunity to be like John the Baptist and say, and speak prophetically to Herod. Right? You're gonna lose your head, but, but, but no, I, I do think from time to time there is that, that, that opportunity. Now, at the same time, I, I want to remind you and pastors and churches everywhere. We can't control for outcomes. We can't control for them listening to us or not. All we can do is be faithful. Right? That's your job. Don't burden yourself with with affecting change. I don't. I don't think that's that's on you. I, th- I think it is. On, it is on us to 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 speak true and um, to all of our neighbors, including those in positions of authority. Right? Am I addressing the question you're asking, David? But, but I suppose I rely on the Christian Institute in this country to raise issues which concern me as a Christian. So, th- so they will actually help Christians fight. You know, a gay couple comes to the hotel and they don't want to give the room to it so that they're going to have to go yeah. to court. Uh, yeah. There's other issues come up uh, to do with, for example, um, it could be to do with infertility. So there's lots of issues, ethical issues, which we can't turn a blind eye to. Uh-huh. We do rely on, we need somebody to have the expertise to help us have a voice or fight that situation, especially as an individual comes in my congregation. I don't have the expertise. I can point to that. Well, that's right. That's right. So we need to maybe I mean, have a strategy how we go about uh, it. Well, yeah, but, but yeah, I'm not going to speak too strongly in this domain because I think we're clear in the domain of wisdom. I think the Christians in early Rome, right? First, second Christian, second century Christians, they had no illusions of at all speaking prophetically to caesar they didn't think they could influence government they knew they couldn't influence government didn't even try right it would have been futile now in our context we actually have hopes sometimes illusions of influencing caesar because we do have a say in the government because we've been inculcated in this kind of democratic worldview mindset we 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 have assumptions that we can influence things and not leave a vacuum. In a way, again, Christians in Iran and Iraq and China today don't. Thailand, Malaysia don't. Okay. So the Lord has given us the ability to speak and influence in small ways, sometimes medium ways, even now. Yeah, within the bounds of prudence. Yeah, let's let's see what we can do. And uh, like you said, uh, I, I don't know what the Christian Institute is, but over here we have, you know, for instance, we have a we have a uh, a ministry slash law firm called ADF Alliance Defending Freedom. Another one called I think Christian Liberty. Several of these things that when when the Christian baker in Colorado is 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 sued uh, and prosecuted for for not baking a, a cake for the gay wedding, the Alliance Defending Freedom will kind of come to his aid and help them. And, and when these legal things come up and people ask me, I can point them to them. Um, I find it useful to be able to point people to the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and, you know, how they've thought through some of these harder uh, issues. A friend of mine, a couple of friends of mine at ERLC and one of the seminary wrote on, on how do we think about the fact that the vaccines for, for COVID were produced in part by um, vaccines that, uh, you know, used aborted fetuses uh, in some sense to, to, uh, to, you know, devise the vaccines 
How do we think about that as Christians ethically? Am I compromised by taking that vaccine? Yeah, I don't have an expertise on these things, and I'm, I'm happy to point to resources that, that do discuss these things. So all that to say, look at the New Testament. Plenty of interdependence, plenty of working together between churches, I think. Um, Second John, Third John, so forth. Um, Paul talking about these types of things. So I think I think I think we can work together in different ways and point to experts on various things. And and insofar as we have a voice, make influence. I would just urge caution, right? I would just urge caution, and not supplant the ministry, the primary ministry of the local church, and not say the Gospel Coalition or the Christian Institute or whatever speak for Jesus. Our our churches speak for Jesus. Thank you. Ask a question. Yes, Andy. Um, it's just on ecclesiology, a bit different from today's lecture. But um, you, you mentioned, I think it was yesterday, just about kind of the, the gathering, kind of is the essence of kind of what um, texts um, in Acts. You know, like you've got the uh, Jerusalem church where there's 5,000 people, um, which suggests it was quite difficult for them to all gather together in one assembly and Acts 8 1 and Acts 9 31. What do you say to somebody who kind of uses those texts um, against the assembly argument? Acts 9 31 yeah. is against yeah. the assembly argument? Yeah. So, like, they, so it talks about how the, the um, church throughout. The church throughout Judea, Samaria, and Galilee had a time of peace. Yeah. Is it that text? Yeah, that's right. Uh, there is a six, seven page appendix in my book, One Assembly, on that one verse. Not written by me, but written by a friend of mine, talking about the grammar used in that verse, in which the uh, the grammatical form there um, uh, suggests that it's actually, uh, well, I forget what she calls it. She calls it a, a, a collective plur, a collective singular, in which the, the word church is used in the singular, though it means a plurality of churches. Kind of like if, 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 if I said the report went out that and by report, I'm using it the singular, but um, it, what it means is multiple people both speaking and giving that report as, 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 the, as the news travels around. It's a particular kind of grammatical phrase and type. Uh, and uh, so the word church is used there in the singular, um, but it, it is referring to a plurality, in fact, of churches. And, and, and Luke's usage of, of, of kata and the, I think, genitive is repeated in a few other places where it's super clear that he's using a collective singular in that instance. All that to say, there, there is kind of a highly technical grammatical explanation for that usage in Acts 9.31. All the details would be in this appendix in my book, One Assembly. Um, and, and it is the only usage in the New Testament of the word church in this way. It is a unique usage in that moment all that to say, um, I used the French press this morning. Uh, all that to say, uh, I wouldn't go building your ecclesiology off of a, a unique usage and be a, a collective plural usage that you're misunderstanding. 
Is that okay. at all helpful, Andy? Yeah, no, thank you. I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Me and um, some friends were talking about that verse um, the other night, and we were just saying how you've got to kind of hold both in tension. But I'll have a look, I'll have a look at your appendix and um, see what it says. But what, what would you say about kind of 5,000 people being Christians, and that's just men? Like, how would they have gathered in Jerusalem? Is that, is that the same sort of thing? Uh, not quite. Uh, it's not the same sort of thing because they all gathered. Acts chapter 6, verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, Acts chapter 5, verse 12, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. There they are, all together in Solomon's, this three-foot ball field length structure. And there they were all together in Solomon's portico. Acts chapter 2. Um, 41. They received this word, were yeah. baptized, added 3,000 number. There, and they devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, and then verse 46 day by day attending the temple together so yeah thank you that's really helpful thank you that's great yeah yeah Can i just ask a quick question um it's paul yeah. right here um Hello, paul uh mentioning about straight line issues and, and jagged line issues i think is really helpful helpful distinction but when it comes to these straight line issues and membership and statements of faith should those be included um, when it comes to admitting people into to membership. So should those current political issues, which we do see as straight line issues, should should they be a requirement when we have people into a church, into a church or, or not? Um, thoughts on that? Pro probably I wouldn't put them in my statement of faith just because there's, you know, there's dozens of them. And that's become an unwieldy, unnecessarily taxing statement of faith. Um, uh, uh, and I think in your statement of faith, you want you want the gospel and things that protect the gospel, like a doctrine of the church. You don't want every conceivable ethical issue. And to join this church, you have to agree that adultery is wrong. And to join this church, you have to agree that fornication is wrong. And to join this church, you have to agree that it's wrong to steal from the poor. And to join this church, you have to. Yeah, I, I don't think you don't want you want to put all of your ethics and, and politics is sort of a subset of ethics. It's social ethics, right? I don't think you would have had all your ethical issues in a statement of faith, bottom line. Now, if in the context of a membership interview, that, you know, it kind of comes out that this person actually believes, hey, you know, I think, you know, sex outside of marriage, yay, it's a good thing. It's like, well, hold on. <laughs> I'm not sure this is going to work out here. Now, see, so yeah, something comes out in a, in, a, in a conversation, but I don't think you put all those things in your statement of faith. Okay, yeah, hey, tell you what, guys, let, let me pray and close us. And then if you happen to have a question that you, you, you've wanted to ask and that's going to bug in you, um, stay on. And I'll, I'll, I'm happy to do this for another 15, 20 minutes, whatever, whatever it takes. So let me close in prayer. Thank you all for being here. And, um, um, and then we'll technically end. But you'll just have to sneak away quietly in case anybody else has more questions. All right. Let's 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 pray. 
Uh, Father God, thank you for your love and mercy to us in Christ. Thank you for uh, teaching us from your word. Thank you that your word is clear, sufficient, authoritative, inerrant. Thank you that by your word you act and you re recreate. Faith comes through hearing, we know. And Lord, we pray that you granted us all more faith as we are considering various texts uh, throughout the last few days. And as we go away and we reflect on those texts, that we would have more faith, more wisdom to teach and lead your congregations according to your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for each of these brothers. Lord, I pray that every brother in that classroom, every brother on the Zoom call would not stumble into sin. I pray that you would preserve them to the end. I, I pray that they would not give way to idols. I pray they would not be deceived by the culture. I pray that they would remain above reproach. Lord, if there is temptations to sexual sin or greed or pride or vanity or fame or, or uh, neglecting their wife and children uh, represented in my heart or represented in this group, Lord, we bring these things quickly to the surface before they destroy them, destroy, destroy me, cause us to repent, that we would walk in righteousness all of our days. And so commend your righteousness in word and deed to our respective congregations. Lord, please have mercy on us. Do not let the evil take any brother here out. Keep each one of them, I ask. Keep their wives, keep their children. I pray for the wives that uh, uh, of the brothers here, Lord, that you would protect and preserve those wives and cause them to delight in their husband and delight in their husband's ministry. I pray for the children of the brothers here, that you would, you would cause them to know that they are loved by their father and loved by Jesus. And each child represented by the brothers on the Zoom call would put their trust in Christ and follow after him. I pray the same for my own children. Lord, have mercy on these brothers. I love them because I know you love them. We pray that you would use each one of them. Use me for your glorious kingdom purposes. We pray all in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank the you, music God. plays a few guys sneak off <laughs> any other questions I've got one I don't know whether you can see me I can't see what you can see I'm in the classroom here <laughs> yeah what's your name I'm Calix Cal Alex Calix Calix yes. all right thank you um, so my question would be, you mentioned about pastors should be speaking on clearly on straight line issues um, because that binds the conflict. <laughs> I fully agree with you and I, uh, I, and I was just like uh, to ask your opinion on, on the following. Um, I'm a pastor even when I step down the pulpit. So when I'm preaching, I think that's the safest place. I'm exegeting God's words. Uh, I've got one job um, to be faithful to that. That's, I feel very safe there. Um, but then I stop preaching. I um, mingle with the church members. I'm still the pastor. <laughs> um, and I still need to keep myself to that same standard. But someone asks for my opinion on something. Um, so I'm not preaching. And I'm, I'm just, quote-unquote, having a conversation. And um, I give my opinion on something. And I've actually uh, recently done this. And what's happened is that since then, I'm looking at that particular person I shared my opinion with. 
And I think, oh, goodness gracious, everything I preach, they are going to now seek through what I said. But I only said it in a personal conversation. So does this mean that basically we have no right to voice our opinion whatsoever in any context as pastors? And I think clear to, to this particular person, look, this, this is just my opinion. I wouldn't, you know, sort of preach this or, you know, tell people what to do. It's, I'm, I'm just thinking this sort of thing through. Yeah, no, great question. Uh, three things. Number one, be happy to forsake your rights, like Paul. You know, forsake of the churches I use, and forsake all my rights, my right to pay, for instance. So, in some sense, be happy to forsake your right to voice your opinion on other matters. Number two, um, if you're going to say something, I think you need to heavily qualify it, like you just suggested you do. Look, this is not me speaking as your pastor. This is me as a guy, my sense of things. So please don't take what I'm about to say with any any sense of biblical authority or weight. But yeah, I, I, I think this seems like a good policy. Number three, uh, I really would even be careful about that. I'd be slow to offer counsel. Now, to some extent, it depends on who you're talking to and your relationship with them and your sense of that person. You know, maybe this is a good friend and you know he's happy to push back on you and he's happy to call you an idiot because you've been, you know, you, you've known each other for 15 years and, you know, you know how to joke around with each other and he doesn't, you know, hold up your 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 opinions with, you know, as, a, as if they're the, the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Um, he, he, you know, as opposed to say, say maybe somebody in the congregation who just, oh, pastor, and, and, and everything you say has, has the, the, the Shekinah glory of, of, of God around it, you know, in, in her mind or something. As, you know, so you, you're gonna, you know, it depends on who you're talking to and your sense of that person. Um, but in general, I, I think it's right for pastors to have a certain reserve. I think it commends the gospel. It commends the weightiness of our, of our task and our message. So bottom line, brother, putting those three things together, be happy to forsake your rights, qualify everything you say, show reserve in general. I leave it to you and your discernment, picking case by case what you should say, what you shouldn't say. But again, a, a general reserve, I think, is appropriate. Thank you. That's very helpful. Yeah. I have, I have a question, a quick one about the pandemic. Um, things, yep. happened, things happened within the pandemic that felt like straight line issues, like everyone saying you, you can't worship, you can't meet, go online. Um, but churches disagreed on different things. And so it's, it feels at times like a jagged line issue. So, yep, sure. So what do we do? How do we, like, I think it's a jagged line issue probably at the end, but it, it, it touches on straight line stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's precisely why it was so difficult, I think, for many of us. Because obviously gathering together is a straight line issue. Churches must be able to gather. We're commanded to gather. Yeah. Where it becomes jagged <clears throat> is the temporariness of it. Okay. In order to save lives, I'm asking you not to gather for two weeks. Okay, that makes sense. I, I'll go with that. I'm asking you not to gather for a month. Mm, okay, I get it. I'm asking you not to gather for six months. Eee, that's getting harder. It's really getting harder. 
I'm asking you to not together for five years. Sorry, no way. I'm no. just going to disobey. Okay, where, where, where's the cutoff, right? Between one week and five years. I don't know. But that's what me and my fellow elders got to figure out. <laughs> so, Lord, give us wisdom. Thanks. Thank you. Unsatisfying answer, I know, but I, I, I think that's, I think that's the rub. I think it, it's it, it becomes jagged, precisely on sort of that point of duration. Right. Anybody else? <laughs> 